0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Debrief by Lethal Minds Journal. I'm your host, Nate Gladden. I'm really excited for this episode, Chasing Development with Gunny from the United States Marine Corps. Gunny Chase Hunter. I'm pumped about it. You may know him as Quantico Warfighter Society on the socials. And guess what? If you go to the socials of Instagram, the socials of Twitter or YouTube, you can go to at field underscore seats, uh, and you can get updates on tips and info, all kinds of stuff, because this week's episode is brought to you by FieldSeats.com. It is an e commerce, federally licensed firearms dealer. They provide virtual reviews on brand new firearms, optics, and gear. Where at the end of the review, they give away the item being reviewed to guess who? An attendee, which means if you're a listener, you can become an attendee, and that'd be pretty friggin' fantastic. So there you go. So this episode, I'm really excited for it. Uh, Gunny joins me. Honestly, I call it you know chasing development. The honest answer is we 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 cover a lot. We dive deep into the profession of arms. We talk about leadership philosophy. We talk about that joint environment. We really it, the episode just listen, man. It was great. Uh, I'll tell you my one big fear is you're going to hear him and you're gonna be like um, Nate. You are maybe barely put together, but he's squared away. So maybe he should be the host of this podcast because Chase crushed it. Gunny is just legit. So um, for those new to the podcast, it's me and somebody coming on and we talk uh, about honestly whatever they're passionate about and whatever that thing is. That then coincides with what I'm passionate about, and I'll be damned if this episode wasn't exactly that. So I hope you enjoy what we did. We're talking about a couple hours of powers, if you will. Had a friggin' great time. We talked to United States Marine Corps. We talked to the United States Air Force. We talked, well, we talked to every branch, actually. We talked good, bad, and ugly. We talked about a lot of things. There's nuggets all the way through, and there's also truth all the way through, and I think that's really important. If you endure the entire thing, I do have one last thing to tell you there at the end. But more than anything, I really just want you to listen to the words of, uh, of Gunny. And uh, the best part is, we actually didn't even talk about... I'm going to go ahead and tell you this. I'm going to give you a little bit of insider information. We didn't actually dive that deep, uh, really at all, into Quantico Warfighter Society because we got so sidetracked by, uh, by things that really, really excited us. Which means he's going to have to come back on again. Oh, darn. Don't you worry. We are going to deep dive what the Warfighter Society is in the next episode that we do together. But guys and gals, those in the barracks, those in garrison, those on the road, those deployed, whatever you want to say, this is an episode for you. So here we go. We'll just say we're going. So I'll let you introduce yourself, obviously. And then uh I think people are gonna get some really good uh some really good stuff out of this. So uh yeah, yeah. without any further ado, uh Chase, I'll let you kind of introduce yourself.
1: Absolutely. So uh Chase McGrady Hunter, Gunnery Sergeant McGrady Hunter for those that I know through the Marine Corps. And by trade, I am a cyber networking chief, so so uh 0639. And basically what that means is I set up cyber networks in austere environments, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, so a data guy, my entire career wasn't necessarily what I wanted to be right. Marine Corps kind of just puts you where they, they need you to be and you kind of blossom and whatnot. Uh, but the recruiters got me there. Uh, I ended up blossoming in it pretty well. I, I know the MOS, I've been pretty successful in it, not necessarily my huge passion, but I'm at that point in my career right now, being a gunnery sergeant, where I'm getting to make that choice between staying in my MOS and becoming a mass sergeant or, you know, going the first sergeant route and just focusing on personnel. So right now I'm focusing on trying to get to that first sergeant role uh, and move in that direction. So I've been in the Marine Corps for almost 12 years now. Uh, married, got a kid. Uh, she's one and a half. So kind of working through that in the senior enlisted ranks, uh, a little bit different than some of the people that <laughs> knocked that out earlier in their life. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so 30 years old doing the the first time parent thing. Uh, so yeah. that's a, an absolute blast, but uh quick synopsis of my career, uh, Been a little bit of everything in the Marine Corps. So I started out with the Marine Air Wing, uh, so I got to do some time uh, with the ground side element of that, but really setting up the communications infrastructure for the Air Wing. I spent two years in Okinawa, Japan doing that, and then after that, I transferred over to uh, back stateside, Camp Pendleton, so San Diego, and spent four years with 1st Transportation Support Battalion, basically just a big Motor T unit. Uh, mm-hmm. Doing a lot of ground ops, supporting the 1st Marine Division during their operations and stuff like that. And then I my last assignment prior to coming over here to the university, I spent over at the 1st Marine Division. And that was with 1st Battalion, 4th Marines. Uh, so an infantry unit. So I've gotten to do a little bit of the different aspects of the Marine Corps. Uh, during that time with the infantry, I did two deployments with them. So I did the 31st MU, which is basically just a Marine Expeditionary Unit out of, uh, based out of Okinawa. So I did that rotation, and then we did the 15th MEU was my last deployment. So that's Marine Expeditionary Unit deploying out of San Diego. Mm-hmm. And on that one, we got to go, you know, a little bit around everywhere, focusing on the Middle East, but we got to do some operations in the Horn of Africa as well. Uh, So Somalia, basically moving Marine Raiders and Navy SEALs out of Somalia into Kenya before President Biden took office. Mm-hmm. So that was a, a great experience actually getting to do my MOS, you know, supporting real combat operations and everything. Uh, you know, kind of essentially what everybody is building up to in their careers, right? Is when do I get to do this in real life? Yeah. So from there, uh, my my career was a little bit up in the air. Uh, I got histed, which for all the Marines that are listening, they'll know that basically means you know the Marine Corps is telling you you're gonna go be a recruiter or a drill instructor, right? <laughs> uh, it was a kind of weird place in my career at that time because before the deployment started, I was already trying to, uh, get my foot in the door to go and teach at one of the staff NCO academies, the staff non-commissioned officer academies. So it falls under the Marine Corps University. So I thought that'd be a good fit because I have always been kind of passionate about teaching. I actually went to college before I joined the Marine Corps to be a teacher. Uh, ended up dropping out my freshman year to join the Marine Corps, obviously, right? As fate would yeah. tell. But um, so I started that package to try and do that before I went on this deployment because of, co- but because of COVID, you know, things got kind of jumbled up and they couldn't get me in for an in-person interview. So I was like, all right, I'll pick it up when I get back from the deployment. I'm not up for orders yet anyways, right? On the deployment, the Marine Corps hits me. They say, you're going to go be a recruiter. So I come back from that deployment uh, a little early. I was actually the first person back stateside to get back and set up the data, you know, infrastructure for the units that everybody can come back and have computers to jump on, you know, day Mm -hmm. one. And it was during that two weeks where I'm basically stateside by myself. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to go and interview down at the academy anyways. The worst thing they can tell me is no you know, get out of here. You're already, you already got orders to go and do some recruiting stuff or whatever. Um, So I went and I knocked that out and, you know, sure enough, I passed the interview screening process and they're like, yeah, you're good to go. You know, if you can get the orders, go for it. And so I worked that out to where I was able to get the orders. Uh, it just ha- happened that, you know, my name didn't get pulled for the actual hist, you know, they put it out there, but I didn't actually get the orders. And so I was able to get my foot in the door and I come over to the staff NCO Academy and I worked out another, you know, kind of drug deal to try and get myself over to Quantico specifically, because I've always been on the, the West Coast my entire life, born and raised in California. But I was like, I want to try something new. I want to go to the East Coast. My wife is born and raised in LA as well. She's a UCLA grad. And so she wanted to get out of California and try something new as well. And so we were just up for it. And I figured, you know, Quantico would provide a different uh, taste of the Marine Corps because it's mm-hmm. so close to the flagpole. You know, it's right there next to D.C., I oh, to uh, yeah. be interacting with different types of people, different types of environments that you know you're not going to get in the regular Fleet Marine Corps out in San Diego or yeah. you know North Carolina. So I worked it out to get down here to uh to Quantico, and this is where I've been for the last year and a half now. I spent the the majority of that year and a half over here teaching the sergeant school, which is the the lowest level of our official academy schools. Uh, so teaching those E5s, those sergeants. And that's been an absolute blast. I mean, you know, know, there's really nothing like teaching the youngest group of of those enlisted Marines that are coming through. They're in that pivotal point in their career where they're sergeants. They got some Marines under their charge and they really they're really malleable. You know, they're in a position where you can you can shape essentially the next 15, 20 years of the Marine Corps. If you can get into these guys and gals that come through Uh, because they're there, they're, you know, they're looking for mentorship. They're looking for leadership. And they're young enough to still accept it and not be so set in their ways, right? Uh, so I spent the majority of the last year and a half teaching those uh, those Marines, and I pushed through 11 classes of those Marines. So a lot of experience in that realm. And then just recently, I got uh, picked up to be the the new chief faculty advisor for the career school. So now I'm teaching the staff sergeants. Uh, so okay. kind of that mi- middle tier grade, um, the first line of staff NCOs in, in the Marine Corps, right? So- now I'm the chief advisor for them. Uh, I've done one cycle with them right now. And that kind of brings us up to speed to today.
0: Yeah. All right. How, how does, so, so staff NCOs for the Marine Corps, like what is that realm of, like you said staff, like staff sergeants D6, right? So like kind of goes into like, you guys kind of do things. I mean, obviously every branch is a different way, but they, we also have overlap, but I know like for instance, in the Navy, when you make E7, it's a, It's a big damn deal, right? Like you make it to the chiefs, you know, it's a big deal, right? The air force, obviously, you know, master sergeant E seven, uh, army. I don't don't actually know. What are they? they, No, they're not master master sergeant E eight. They're, uh, just the first class Sergeant first class. I think. Yeah. I think that's right. Yeah. There's at least one army guy right now. Like, how dare you not know this? And like, I don't know, man. I like barely passed basic training for the air force. Calm down. Um, But like the the E6, E7, like what's that realm like? What's that like that, those tiers kind of how they work in the Marine Corps for for those who are, because I think also too, it's like, this is an education in the joint environment, right? Like it's Mm -hmm. that kind of thing to where we can really understand each other and really understand those different things.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, now more than ever, maybe that joint understanding Mm -hmm. of the joint environment is extremely important. Something that I'm sure we'll talk about and touch on, right? Yeah. But uh for the Marine Corps if you take you know all nine enlisted ranks you could section them up into three different categories right you got the junior marines which is E3 and below uh you got the NCOs which is the corporals and the sergeants and then you have the staff NCOs so E6 and above right mm-hmm. uh so E6 and above staff sergeant gunnery sergeant and then moving up to the first sergeant master sergeant split essentially uh that is you know that's that epitome that you're talking about as far as like there's a distinct difference in, yeah. in that role right now not to say that the ncos don't have a ton they have a yeah, ton absolutely. of responsibility that's a huge jump for a young marine right but to make it to that staff nco level you're making it to that chief level in the navy right that equivalent mm-hmm. um same thing for you guys you guys have the master sergeant level right now you're a a staff nco or a senior staff mm-hmm. nco in the air force and that comes with a totally different set of responsibilities, absolutely and, and expectations really is what it comes with, right? No. Yeah. Uh, so definitely that staffs aren't level. So the guys and girls that I'm teaching now uh, they're at that point in their careers where they've now made it over and they're part of the staff NCO crew on uh, just a whole different level of expectations that come with that. Right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's important. It, it's, it's an interesting thing, right? Like those little nuances, of uh, you know, I've been on, I've been fortunate enough to do joint assignments, joint deployments. So kind of being exposed to primarily the army, but you know, Obviously, Marine Corps a little bit uh, inside of like, you know, with MARSOC, uh, the Navy, with all the Navy, like the SEALs and different stuff, uh, spending time in this realm. You spend a lot of time with those kind of individuals, but then, of course, the Army as well. But I always think there's an interesting thing to like understand those dynamics, right? Like if you look at the Air Force, of course, the Air Force is, you know – we one that 100% we are definitely not the uh, the people that everybody's like oh man you guys are like full throttle like you're chaos but no we're not that now. but we have a very distinct setup for us the E5 the E6 but like the E6 for us is truly it's called a technical sergeant right and they genuinely like we believe in that depending on your job obviously every job's a little bit different but like you are supposed to be the true technical expert like we like you really should be the most advanced individual in your technical career, in your field, you should be the most intelligent individual, right? So like me as an E7, I need to be able to like come down and have, if I have four different versions of technical something under, in my, in my career, not necessarily in my career field, but in my squadron, and I have these different ones, I need to be able to go to each one. And I need to have a, obviously a grasp of what they're doing but I really need them to be truly like E6 is where I genuinely turn to. And I'm like, Hey, what are we doing? What is that? Like, what is the thing you're actually getting after right now? What is the technical aspects of it? What do I need to take forward? What can I get you for equipment? Like, that's really that difference. Like for us, it's like a true thing, right? So it's like staff sergeant, you're learning how to lead. Uh, The other interesting thing, it depends. So like, obviously, so like I've spent the majority of my career in aviation, right? And so aviation is totally different. So um. Like when you're coming through, I had this conversation quite often. I think I look back at my time in DC and doing a staff role, being on, uh, being at headquarters. And I actually think about how much it made a difference of learning. This was to communicate with the, you know, I'll say regular air force, just like non-flying aviation side. We have skill levels, right? So it's five level, seven level, nine level, all these different skill levels. And the majority of the air force is you do up to your skill level right so it's very much like you like you are at the beginning you're just your job is to just do the job like whatever we tell you to do just do the job same thing in the marine corps right. it doesn't change yep. right it's like hey your only job right now is to not suck at this and get it done like when you really break it down it's like just do this don't shoot yourself and get this shit done like something like that <laughs> it's that kind of thing so it's the same thing for us the the aviation side's a little different because When you come out of school, it doesn't matter if you are an A1C. It doesn't matter if you are a chief match sergeant. So E1 through E9, when you come out of your school and you go to your first unit and you get mission called, you actually – there's a couple little teeny things that are different. Obviously, there's like levels of instructor and evaluator and stuff like that. But as far as the job, the brand new guy that's been signed off and said he's good to go can go out and do as critical a mission – as the most experienced guy in the unit. And that's like a little bit abnormal, right? So like if I'm a, the the way, so like I spent most of my career as a flight engineer. So there were times when I'm flying along and I may have an 06 and an 05 and then, you know, 205s. Like, you know, I could have a navigator that's a Lieutenant Colonel. I could have a pilot and a co-pilot that are Colonel and Lieutenant Colonel. And I may have two airmen in the back and I'm an E-5 and they're asking if they can do something. I'm like, no, you can't do that. Right. Like that's a very abnormal thing, you know, to be like, hey, sir, like you can't actually do that. This is why. Uh, because I'm supposed to be the technical expert on the airplane. Like, so it's those interesting dynamics. Um, but I think it's important for people to so obviously any of the enlisted are listening that are in different branches to kind of understand, like I can get a grasp of what the other branches do in different worlds. So if I end up around them, I kind of understand the angle, the, the level they're at, like the responsibility. So like, they understand like, Oh, if I'm, if I'm sitting with a bunch of Marines and I'm sitting with E sixes, I'm sitting with somebody who's truly made that next step into that other level. Right. We're at, like, it, it, it's an important thing to understand those different things. Um, and I, I think that's something that has to, that hadn't really been touched on. It's one of the things I think we're like the joint, like if we, if we all went to each other's schools or we actually spent more time together. And I think we're going to have to in the future. um, I think that would really help like bridge some gaps and like really kind of like, I don't know, understand actually what we need to do on the enlisted side. Whereas the officers, they may get a little bit more of this exposure, you know?
1: Yeah, no, it it absolutely does. Right. Uh, like I said, my two deployments were on muse. Right. So I'm partnering up directly with the Navy. Right.
0: Yeah. And
1: in the Navy, it's, if you're not a chief, like you're, you're just not it. Right. You're, you're not just it not yet. it. Uh, That's right. And so like, you know, the chief that, Huge community that they have going on over there with their chiefs, which is E7, E8s, and E9s for the Navy. Yeah. And if you're
0: not a chief, you're not in the chiefs' mess. Like they have their own like special
1: rituals and oh and yeah, I go to right? the
0: chiefs' mess here at our base because my brother-in-law's a chief and he's here on the base, so we we go together.
1: Yeah, so. but both of my deployments, you know, I I deploy as a staff sergeant as an E6, right? And so in the Marine Corps, that's that's a huge deal, right? I have my own section. I am the chief of my section. Like that's literally mm-hmm. like my title, right? I'm the chief, the data chief. But when I go on a Navy ship, like I'm not a chief to the same regards as what they are or what they they think it is, right? So there's always that interesting dynamic where it's, you don't sit in the chief's mess. You're not, you know, a chief by our standards, right? But when we go into a planning and an OPT and we're actually like planning out an operation we're going to be conducting, it's Mm -hmm. like, hey, I'm sitting at the same table as you. So having that joint understanding of, you know, maybe traditionally I don't fall into the same categories as you all. And that's okay. I don't have to get in the chief's mess, but understand when we go to the table and it's planning time.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: As a as a staff sergeant, as an E6, you have to understand that I'm the guy that's leading this portion yeah. where I have this understanding. And it's, if you don't have that joint understanding, that's the thing where you're starting to miss out on the that's cooperation right. that can happen inside of a, a role or a joint
0: environment like that. Oh, yeah. Well, it's funny. Like, we talk about, you know, obviously you do like the Quantico Warfighter Society. So you've done that. We'll get into that. But like, it's mm-hmm. funny. You were talking about doing data stuff at the beginning in an aviation wing, right? And I was thinking about the fact that like right now I'm working with a couple of my NCOs, a couple senior and junior NCOs. So E6s and E7s right now. And they're trying to develop an exercise, like this, like rather large trainer and exercise. And they talked about the other day, they're like, hey, is there any way we can get somebody else involved? It's like, what do you mean? And they were like, well, we, want to do this other stuff and practice some, you know, maybe some different style training. I was like, do you want to do like air to ground? And they were like, that'd be cool. How do we do that? And I was like, I can contact some people I know in the Marine Corps and they could maybe talk to somebody and depending on where you're going, you could connect with them and then you could practice air to ground communication. And they're like, Oh, we could do that. And I was like, of course you can do that. Like, He's absolutely. You got to, reach out to, an got to yep. reach out to an angle. Code. Exactly. So I was like, yeah. we can do that. But when you said, you know, data and air to ground, it made me think about it, but it's like, to possibly have E6 and brand new E7 Air Force people talking to ground guys that are on the other side of that, maybe their con- their counterpart, what they learn and take away from that, just even the communication, understanding how to communicate across branches, right? Like me and you, we're talking and we can like sit down and it can just be Chase and Nate talking and having fun, whatever. It could also be like Gunny and Mass Sergeant talking, but it's, if we're going to work, it's a different conversation, than if we're just trying to like talk through stuff and maybe communicate and help others that are listening and or, or shooting the shit over a beer. Like those are all different conversations, right? So it's like when you get in that environment, you have to figure out where it is that you need to find that common ground and then be able to communicate across it so you can make things work. Right. And I think that's uh I think that's a pivotal thing. Uh again, coming back to the next war, I think that is going to be. Uh, it's going to be re- more required than it has been in the past, right? Like, as an aviator, I'm going to be around some people. Uh, our special warfare guys, they're going to be around, you know, joint uh, joint environments. But other than that, we really don't have a lot of people that have done that because they haven't needed to. Um, and it I, even
1: spreads across, you know, outside of our own organizations within the DOD and within America at the same mm-hmm. time, right? Uh, it comes down to understanding, like, you know, all of our combatant commanders are all talking about partners and allies, right? Because that's yeah. such a big thing, especially if we're talking about... You know, potential wars in a place like the Indo-Pacific, where we're going to be relying heavily on partners and allies. That's right. So, you know, anytime that you can make that connection, when you're out on a deployment, or even hell, back here in the stateside, we're bringing in, uh, we're bringing in foreign partner, ally nations to attend things like the Staff and Steel Academy at, at yeah. Monaco, Pendleton, places like that. Uh, right now, we have a a student that's from the Slovakian Republic. Right. That's awesome. I've I've trained a whole bunch of them. They come through pretty regularly, Uh, but we've gotten people from Italy, you know, Germany, all these different places. And it's like, you get a different component when you start to understand, okay, Mm -hmm. it's not just America and it's certainly not just America in a future fight. Right. That's right. You have to be able to understand that and cross that outside of just organization to organization, but also country to country.
0: Oh yeah. Well, you know, I think about like I, I, I think about the different connections I've made. Uh, you know, it's funny. I, when I went through flight engineer school, I went through school with the Dutch guy, right? I've had that interaction, that constant communication with him, and then I've met people from other c- countries as well. A lot of them in South America, uh, and some different ones uh, over in, over in Europe as well. And I look – and I did a joint thing when I was young. I did a joint thing as on the uh, in Japan when I was based in Japan, and I went to live with uh, – live on and with uh, the Japanese military on their base and work on their airplanes with them. And, like, they got to – they sent people over to us. So making these connections and these communication pieces, right? And, you know, if something like that happens and things go down, you never know. But it's like, hey, I'm here. I actually know somebody here. I can reach out. I can ask them. They may not be the person but six degrees of separation kind of thing that may get me to where I want to go. Right. Like I need to know this person for that thing. Right. So it's, you know, it's the same thing as it's like, Oh, if, if my cyber people needed to talk to Marine Corps cyber, I'm not going to just like pick up the 1-800 Marine Corps cyber number (laughs) and be like reaching out to chase. Hey, my people are going here. Who do you know there? Like it's, it's that kind of thing, right? Like it's, you have those, if, as soon as you start making these connections and you start to develop these relationships, you, and that's truly the profession of arms as well, right? Like when we when you really look at it and you go, like we you can do the job for four years and you've done if you've done your four years, you've done the same thing as the person who's done thirty because you did your part and you served, right? But if you start to go past that and you continue to move into that a little bit further in, you're truly d- diving into that professional realm at that point, like you've decided to make this your true profe- profession. And I that's think actually, that's really important. Yeah. That's actually like
1: pretty much what you just said is, is almost directly a line that I have uh, written into my leadership philosophy that I have framed and posted up on my wall in my office. Right. Uh, so that when all my students come through my class, they can just look at the wall and be like, all right, that's Gunny McGrory's. you know, that's what he believes in, in one page, right. Uh, a quick yeah. synopsis of what he believes in. And one of the lines that I have in there is, you know, The second that you raise your hand for the second time, you know, and you're Mm -hmm. enlisting past that four years, because anybody can serve for the first four years. And, you know, I don't blame anybody for getting in the Marine Corps, getting in the military and saying, you know, thought I wanted it. Doesn't turn out that this is what I want to do forever. Maybe it was good for the four years, but hey, shake your hand, get out, do great things, support you. Thank you for serving. Right. But the second you raise your hand that second time, you are now saying this is not only what I want, but I'm going to commit myself to it, right? That's right. Uh, and if you don't have that kind of like internal reflection and conversation that I am now committing myself to this, i.e. committing myself to the profession of arms, then you're you're starting to do your, well, not really yourself as much as the organization a disservice, right? That's correct. Because once you get past that point, you have to be invested. Um, you have to be willing to go the, the further mile and start to look at these things in a different light
0: and mm-hmm. you know
1: with a different manner so that you're focused on how do i make myself the most lethal, you know, agile, you know, professional that i can inside of my my specific sector so i can influence the people that i'm now responsible for. And if you don't start to take that responsibility and realize that this is a profession of arms and what that actually means and reflect on that, then you're starting to really fi- fall behind the power
0: curve in my my opinion, right? Oh, 100%. I agree with that. It's funny, like you have. So, everybody comes in the military and they bring their own version of themselves. I really believe that. I like, I have this conversation with, uh, especially with the O's. I talk about this with officers a lot. I'm like, hey, man, like everybody, the same as officers, but obviously they're, they tend to have a trend. Obviously, they went to college, (laughs) you know, they have this, this, this. They go through a very professional school. There's a lot more professional schooling for them at the beginning than it is for us, right? A lot of it for us is, um, Hey man, you guys just get in and do your fucking part, like get in and do the job. Like I said, don't like look down the barrel and shoot yourself in the head. You know, maybe you point it down that way. Uh, Maybe you turn the wrench this way. Maybe you do this. Maybe you set up this, you know, this data link, you do all these different versions of things, but you do that. And then once you cross that line, then you start to get, then they start to take you professional. But I, I tell the officers a lot too. I'm like, Hey man, like you. Your enlisted side, they come from everywhere. So you have the guy, like when I went to basic training, there was a guy, the only thing he owned was the things in his shoebox that he carried because he was homeless, right? And then I, the guy that was on the other side of me had gone to college and he'd played like baseball at the University of Tennessee and then blew out his elbow in like minor league ball and then became a meteorologist. And then another guy who'd worked on Wall Street and then another dude who was like my, one of my favorite people ever, was this dude who was like, he was he was a character out of a movie, but he was from Cleveland, Ohio, right? But he was like, he's my favorite. I'm going to tell a story on I'm real fast. <laughs> basic training. Reggie goes in there and they ask him, like, he's the first person in our group, right? So, you know, like when you get to basic training, they shave your head, right? Mm-hmm. Every military branch, they shave your head. Well, somewhere along the line, Reggie had never seen a military movie and he had never ever heard that they shave your head like he did not know that was a thing oh he wasn't ready he wasn't ready and so reggie goes in and the guy he's the first in line so the guy goes he's like reggie had very nice hair like we're there for two days before they shave your head i think it was like two days or whatever it was like the second day they shave your head or something like uh, that they, right? give,
1: they give us like 20 minutes yeah, <laughs> yeah. so
0: for us it's like the first because like we get in at like two, i don't even know it's like late at night and you get in and yep. it's all chaos and everything else and then you go to bed and then the next day you wake up so i guess it's like the first full day right so it's the first full day you're there they shave your head but Reggie's got like a nice set. I mean, he's got a real head of hair on him. He's looking good, right? And the guy goes, what kind of haircut you want, son? And he goes, how about you give him one of them uptown phase? Just Go ahead. And he starts like describing what he wants. Like he's going into detail, right? And the guy goes, okay. And then shaves his head down the middle and Reggie starts crying. He goes, oh my God, what you doing? About-? Like he just immediately like, lost his mind. He's like, oh God, my mom was going to see this. He's like panicking. He's in total panic mode. He had no idea he was going to get his head shaved, right? So I, I tease all the time, but I tell him, I'm like, you know, somebody like Reggie had no idea what the Air Force, he didn't know what the Air Force even meant when he joined, mm-hmm. right? Like he just knew, like I joined because my grandfather was in and he was my hero and I wanted to be like my grandfather. So I wanted to serve right. in the military. Mm-hmm. And the, so you have all these different people that you're bringing together. So you're trying to mold them to get the job done. Once you go past that point, they made that commitment. I made the commitment. You made the commitment. We make that. Then we have to start to take our personalities, take who we are, take what we brought. And we have to figure out how that molds into this profession of arms, right? Like, I'm a big believer. So I'm a I'm a super nerd, like, big bookworm, big nerd. Like, I'm definitely a guy who 100% will, like, I will rock out to, like, hippie music and, like, go down that path. Then, I don't know, like, I'm I can be very eccentric with a lot of stuff, but then when I go in, I know I have to I know I have to do my job. I know I have to lead my people. I know I have to develop. I know I have to be a team player. I have to do all these things. So I have to, my personality outside of work can be its thing. And then I got, I come to work and it's time to get after it. Right. And it's time to do those things. And I think you have to define what that profession of arms means. I know for me, when I really defined it, like when I truly defined, I don't even say define first time I thought like I actually have to define it. I was at a chief's induction ceremony. Uh we had a chief that got in. uh I was I was young I as a I think I was a staff, maybe I was still a senior, so maybe I was an E4, but I think I was just made E5. And I go to a chief's induction ceremony. He he invited a bunch of his young guys uh to come be a part of his ceremony, which was really cool. Like it was a really cool thing to go to this this big chief ceremony and all of us mm-hmm. being like, Oh wow, like this is what this is, this is really neat. You get get to be a fly on the wall, yeah. Yeah, it was cool. Like to to see it, it's like it really changed it. But there was there was um an army infantry officer that got up there and he was a guest speaker. And then obviously they got into the chief stuff, Um, but he was talking about, and he was like, no matter what you came in for, no matter what you're doing, no matter what it is, he's like, the military is only, he's like, the military is here for two reasons and two reasons only to take or save lives. And that is it he's like, all the other things we compound and add on top of it. He's like, your specialty in your job. Uh, you want to use your college education. You want to give a better life to your children. He's like, you want to explore the world. want You want to get a technical skill you can take as a trade back into the civilian. He's like, all those things. But while you're here, you have to understand that at the end of the day, the only thing that really truly matters is you have to figure out, you have to understand that it's about taking and saving lives. And it's your version of where you're at in supporting whoever is taking or saving a life at that moment. And that's what it's all about. And that really, for me, I was like, Oh shit. All right. Yeah. So like I can go out and have fun and like play rugby and listen to like, I don't know, whatever kind of music and do this and do that and go climb a mountain and do all that. But at the end of the day, I got to come back here and I have to continue to try to evolve as an aviator and then try to be better so that I can support the guy on the ground. Like that kind of thing. So it was like, for me, that was the beginning where I was like, Oh, okay. Okay like this is it this is where i actually no shit now officially have been told this is actually what it's about and it like that was for me that was truly a moment where i was like this is where i start going forward and have to figure it out
1: yeah it sounds like it just gave you a way to frame it right uh 100% I mean, you got to think about like once you have that frame of reference and you've at least you know hit some kind of point and everybody's going to have like maybe not a a speech or something like what you had that put it yeah. into context for you but everybody should have you know, that revelation or that kind of point or that inject in their life where I need to think about this in a different light or at least apply some thought because it's very easy to go about the daily grind and not oh, yeah. really put a whole lot of thought or emphasis onto what is it that I'm doing here in the grand scheme of things, right? What does this organization really mean or what does it really exist for? Because uh, those are some pretty, you know, deep introspective thoughts you have to go into, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Uh, but everybody should hit that point in their career at some point in time. Uh, and You just hope that it would be sooner rather than later, because I'm sure that you've seen it. I know for a fact that I've seen it and it's, it's a huge pet peeve of mine to see, you know, that person that's at the senior ranks that obviously hasn't gotten it yet, but mm-hmm. they're still here because they're still breathing and they still do just enough to get past and get the promotions and, oh, yeah. and whatever. And it's like that person is, you know, essentially just not doing the best for the organization and other people around it, around them, see it too. Right. Uh, oh, but when yeah. you can sit down, you can say, you know, I'm going to take this seriously, which is, which is what devoting yourself to the profession of arm should be right. It's a serious matter. Uh, when you can do that, then, you know, I, I say like the second part of your career kind of starts, right. Uh, That's right. Where now you have that frame of reference. You're saying I'm devoting myself to this, you know, that comes with a whole slew of things. I'm going to now, I'm now going to be more mindful about the fact that I should be reading things that I should be educating right. myself, that I should be attending certain schools. And when I attend these schools, I should take them serious for what they are. Right. That's right. And that's actually kind of how I open up, uh, the introduction chief brief. When I, when I get a new class on deck for the staff and CEO Academy, I'm one of the first pers- people to brief them, uh, during their first morning and I tell them like, you know, you're here at the staff and CEO Academy and whatever you've been told about the Academy, whether it's good, bad, and different, take this as your own individual opportunity. Mm -hmm. and understand like you're going to make of this whatever you're going to make of it. So if you come here with the right attitude, you're going to be able to take away great things, right? If you come in here with a poor attitude, you already just think that there's this negative connotation about being at the academic institute or whatever it is. You're not going to leave with anything because you're not coming with the right attitude, right? You can take anything, you know, you can take something good from even a poor situation, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And so once you get to that point in your career and you start to value you know, that you have an integral role and just finding out what that role actually means inside of the greater organization, that's when things really start to take off for a lot of people. Uh, but it's trying to get them to that, to that point. Right. And that kind of goes into mentorship and trying to lead people along so that they're not spending eight, 10, 20 years trying to get to that point. It's like, Hey, we could probably get you there a little bit quicker if you have the right really- influence along the lines. Uh, but that profession of arms thing goes extremely far. Uh, and i I'd, I'd even argue, and I'm sure many people will agree in, in different regards that, Taking that, taking that uh, to heart, that profession of arms, and, and understanding your role, and, and really being invested into it, that that travels and goes even further than just inside the organization, right? That oh, that yeah. goes to how people outside of the organization view you or view the organization through you, right? One a lot of times that that does matter. I have a class uh, that I teach with with the staffs arms called the profession of arms. Right? And one of the first debates that I open up with uh, is just a debate about how important is it that the american people value what the marine corps does or that they that they understand you know what we do and i get all kinds of different you know injects like oh yeah it's important because of recruiting and and yeah right it's important that mm-hmm. we present ourselves in a certain way because of recruiting that does matter um there's this there's this saying in the marine corps that's it's tossed around a lot uh it's basically that the United States or America doesn't need a Marine Corps it wants a Marine Corps right, and that mm-hmm. stems from a lot of different historical things uh just briefly you know the marine corps's been it's been put on the table uh basically the Marine Corps's been put on the chopping block a couple of times throughout history oh yeah uh and and it makes sense right because the army is is the land army right, and then we got the Navy and then we have the air force and so you know everything's covered down on the Marine Corps is just this you know secondary piece that kind of covers down on a little bit of everything so Throughout history, there's been times, you know, post-World War II, uh, for sure, leading into the Cold War or leading into right before Korea, the Marine Corps was on the chopping block, uh, and that's happened a couple of times. And so that saying has been a a pretty big thing, but people just kind of gloss over it, I feel like, nowadays, because, hey, we're we're so far detached from that. But I bring it into the debate with the Marines, uh, you know, do you guys think that that saying still applies? You know, do you think that it's still important that the american people see the marine corps for what it's supposed to be right mm-hmm. uh and we get pretty pretty far down in the debate And i think it's a good opportunity for them to kind of like think through some of these things and bounce the ideas off of each other and i bring up a uh i bring up a story about how i synthesize this in, in my own head right because everybody's going to experience it in different ways like i said um the way that i came to terms with it was an experience that i had Years ago, and I I think I, I talked to you about this previously, just uh, or at least sent you an article I wrote about it, which is uh an experience I had when I was on leave when I was a brand new staff sergeant, right? And so I picked up staff sergeant pretty quick. Uh, I think I had just passed my six year mark, right? So I'm I'm very junior, right, in the Marine Corps still, uh pretty young in age, right? 24 mm-hmm. years old. Uh, to have that much responsibility as a staff sergeant. I was batting above my, you know, I was punching above my weight class essentially. Oh, yeah. But I was I was there trying to do my very best, right? But a uh, 24 year old brand new staff sergeant and uh, me and my wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, uh, we took leave to go out to a concert. And uh, so leave camp Pendleton, drive out to Vegas and we're attending a concert and whatnot. Uh, it just happened to be the, the country music festival that, that got shot up. Right. And so we're on the the final day of this concert and me and my wife are, we're up at the front of the crowd and we're watching Jason Aldean getting ready to perform his song and whatnot. And um uh, you know, some cracks rang out through the crowd. And so everybody kind of like looks around like, oh, crap, you know, what was that? Mm-hmm. Uh, and immediately my my first thought was, all right, that's like a pack of black cats, you know, like fireworks that somebody just lit off on on Las Vegas Boulevard, which is 20 meters to my right. Yeah. Right. Anything can pop off right there. And so that's what I initially thought. And Jason Aldean gets back to singing after like a two second delay. And so everybody in the crowd is like, OK, it must be, you know, just something maybe it was a speaker's crack. And I heard that tossed around in the crowd, too. Uh, it only took about 10 more seconds for like that second rip of the, the, the gun to go off and for him to send a full magazine down into the crowd. And at that point in time, everything changed, right? The whole dynamic yeah. of of the concert changed. And some, there was a a lady that was shot uh, about 10 feet in front of us. And so she yells out, you know, my friend's just been shot and you see the Las Vegas police start running into the crowd. And the dude starts reloading pretty quick after that. And he's just going pretty much, you know, auto on the crowd. And, I'll, I'll kind of fast forward through the the portion of the the shooting just because it doesn't really apply to this this story about talking to professional arms. But you know, me and my wife, we do what we need to to you know survive essentially inside of that that shooting when it's happening. You know, when you're in a crowd of twenty thousand people, when the crowd falls down, you fall down. You fall uh, down, yeah. Uh, that's under the, right. Under the under the crushing weight of everybody, right? And so we spend the first uh, minute and a half, you know, just kind of weathering the storm while people are are getting shot and whatnot around us trying to find our avenue to escape just like everybody else. And so we get up, we end up uh, making our, our escape out of the venue. And this is where it starts to make that intersection with the Marine Corps, which is why I'm telling the story uh, is we get outside of the venue and, and you know, people are, the shooting still happening. There's still bullets, you know, impacting around all around us and whatnot. Like it is a absolutely chaotic scene, Uh, you know, out of a nightmare. Right. And we start running down this street and luckily I was familiar with the Las Vegas area. So I'm like, I know how to get away from the strip. And the first thing in my mind at this point is there's a terrorist attack, you know,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: ungodly amount of rounds are being shot down here. Not to, not to mention the fact that the, you know, the, the ricochets uh, you know, the impacts on the ground around us as well as, just the the sound of the weapons being shot is kind of echoing off of all the casinos that are in a big circle so it sounds like an absolute war zone out there right uh and so i'm thinking there's a terrorist attack we need to get away from the las vegas strip and so i start running with my my wife and i'm pulling her along and we're trying to get away from the strip running down one of these streets on uh reno avenue and my wife is like out of breath so she's like we got to stop we got to stop i got you know she can't breathe uh and so i slow to like a fast walk. I pull out my cell phone and I, I call my grandparents cause they live in Las Vegas. And I was like, call them up. And I'm like, Hey, there's a terrorist attack. I need you to come to the pin that I'm going to drop on my phone uh, to pick us up. And so while that 10 second conversation is happening with my grandparents, my wife sees a a woman who's, she, she had been uh, trampled during the stampede of people trying to escape. Right. And she was having an asthma attack and kind of in panic. Right. And so my wife reaches out and grabs her and she's like, are you alone? And the woman's on the phone with with her husband at the time. And she's crying, you know, in hysterics. And she's like, yes, I'm alone. And so my wife says, my boyfriend's a Marine. Come with us. He'll get us out of here, right? That's the only thing she says to this woman. And so the woman, she's on the phone with her husband. She says, honey, there's a Marine. I'm going with him. I love you. And she hangs up the phone, right? Never met this woman in my life. And so we grab her and we pull her along and I start running down the street a little bit more. And I'm trying to find like a safe place to get us off the street because I'm just thinking, you know, people, mm-hmm. whoever it is that's carrying out this attack, they're going to come out onto the streets and we're all 100%. Yeah, we're all free game right out here on the streets. So it'd be easy just to sweep across the streets uh, with a gun. And so I'm like, all right, let's get us behind this dumpster and this like pile of junk essentially that I see. So I get us off the streets and it only takes a couple of minutes for that area to be kind of overrun with other people seeking refuge too, right? And so during that time frame, I'm trying to make connection with my grandparents again to see like where they're at and how we can get off of the strip even further. And two more women come up. Uh, one of them was injured. She's just crying that she had a broken leg. Uh, the other girl's like dragging her along. And so we take those two girls and we get them into our little hideout now too. And we're trying to calm them down. And my girlfriend does the same thing. She says, Hey, it's going to be okay. Stay with us. My boyfriend's a Marine. He's going to get us out of here. You just have to listen to him. And so I'm telling my girlfriend, I'm like, hey, you got to keep them calm. You got to keep them quiet because they're going to give away our position kind of thing while I work out how we're going to move, where we're going to go, stuff like that. And so the crazy thing is like during this time frame, uh, just a couple of minutes passed by and I'm like, OK, we're at a point now where we have to move. We have to get out of here. This this area is overrun. And my I already know that essentially police are going to lock off the the Las mm-hmm. Vegas Boulevard. Right. And so I know that my my grandparents they're on their way, but they're not going to get into where we're at. So we need to get further off the strip to get out of the police barricades that are going to be set up. And so I tell the girls, I'm like, hey, we got to move, All right. I just need you to trust me. and I need you to follow me, essentially, right? And one of the girls, the one that wasn't injured with the broken leg, uh, she looks over at me. And in this moment, it was, it's, it was such a surreal experience at the time, right? But yeah. it's something that I've, I've reflected on a lot uh, following that. But she looks at me and she's like, are you really a Marine? Are you really a Marine? And I was like, you know, in this moment, I'm like, lady, we're getting freaking shot at. Like, yeah, what the hell does it matter? Uh, But, but I'm like, yeah, I'm a Marine. And so I pull out my phone. I just show her the lock screen. Right. And on the lock screen is a picture of me and my, my girlfriend at the time and in my dress blues. And so she sees that picture and she grabs her friend who the one with the injured leg and that's crying. And she's like, he's really a Marine. He's, it's going to be okay. He's actually a Marine. Right. Yeah. We're in the middle of Las Vegas, right? We're not any. We're 500 miles away from Corps Base, right? And so, I I grab these these girls. uh, You know, we throw the throw the girl with the the injured leg, throw her arm around my shoulder. My girlfriend grabs her other side, right, and we make our final dash to get out of there. Um, and so we we end up escaping the night, right? Uh, All of us uninjured, uh, you know, relatively, right? And it was in the months, you know, following that that I'm like reflecting on that situation. It's like all three of these women none of which are, you know, they don't have any family. Like, cause I got to know the, the girls afterwards, right? Uh, we stay yeah. in contact up until this day. And uh, none of them have family in the military. None of them know really anything about what a Marine is, right? Yeah. There's no, there's no context there. It's just the understanding of what the public perceives a Marine to be, right? That's right? And so I have that discussion with my students, like, it's important, yes, for recruiting. It's important that we are able to present ourselves as as this thing, right, for recruiting purposes and, and all that. Yeah, that's the low-hanging fruit when we look at why it's important to be a professional in the professional yeah. arms and project yourself some way. Uh, but when you look at it in the grander pictures, like, the American people expect something of that too, right? And that comes yes. – right? and that's not even just to say the American people, right? If that's what the American people think that don't know really what a Marine is or what a military person is – Think about what that means for our enemies overseas. Oh, you know, yeah, our adversaries. Like we have a reputation to uphold for a reason, right? And when 100%. we're not able to do that, uh, that's when it becomes a problem, right? Because I was asked to give a uh, a speech to a, a big Lance Corporal seminar. There's like 120 graduates, so there's like 800 people in the crowd. Uh, and this is just right after I I was awarded the the Navy and Marine Corps accommodation medal for for heroism for that night, right, and so like everybody in the first Marine Division kind of knew the story at that point, and so they're like, "Hey, would you be our guest speaker?" I'm like, "Yeah, of course, right, <laughs> yeah, uh, I was nervous as hell, right shit I'm like, oh man, this is like this seemed instructor. like a good idea, but now <laughs> shit, like <laughs> yeah, this is before I was instructor, so I was not about it uh but i I was like, yeah, of course I will, right uh, and so I'm telling this same story to them, um, and I'm trying to peel back like the importance of this for the these young Lance corporals that just graduated their first course, right. And I tell them it's like one these these women they didn't know me right, they just mm-hmm. knew I was a marine, and that's all they knew. They didn't care about all the semantics that went behind it. They didn't care that I'm a data Marine of all things, right. like the most pogue like not grunt thing that right. there is is a data marine uh they didn't care that I was a data Marine, they didn't care that I had only been in the Marine Corps for six years, that I was a brand new staff sergeant that I didn't know his you know his ass from his hand uh." They didn't care that I had never been on a combat deployment at that time. Like, I had mm-hmm. never been on any deployment at that point in my career. Uh, so all of those semantics, all those different things, they they didn't matter to those mm-hmm. women in, like, the moment where they were putting their life in my hand. Uh, that's right. The only thing that mattered was that I was a Marine, and that simple thing meant something to them, right? And yeah. so, like, that's what I try to express to my students and express to Marines when I get the chance to talk to them is – there comes like a level of responsibility, right? And we always talk about it in the Marine Corps. I'm sure you guys do in, in the Air Force and everywhere in the military. It's like the reputation that we have is is not one that we probably individually earned, at least not yet in our careers, depending on mm-hmm. where you're at. Uh, but it's absolutely ours to lose, right? And the reputation 100%. is one that's been, it's been earned over 200 and something odd years of our services history, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's like when we say that we stand on the shoulders of giants, it's like we do because that's the kind of reputation that we have where – a that's nobody right. on the street of Las Vegas in the middle of nowhere, people, the American people would trust their entire lives to that person just because he's a Marine, oh, yeah. right? Oh yeah. And so I know that was a long story, but at the same time, like well, that's pertinent. That was a yeah. yeah, it was a huge, uh, huge moment, obviously, in my life for many reasons. But it it made I was able to reflect on it and just get a ton out of it as far as like how do I relate that to my role inside the profession of arms, right? And so I've always come back to it and and shared it at moments where I thought it was appropriate with with people. Yeah.
0: Oh, listen, I think that's an important thing to share, right? And I think it's important to understand that. You know, it's funny. Like, there's a book coming out sometime in the next couple of months called Washington's Marines, and it's talking about like George Washington and the Marines and like how they got started and a lot of this different stuff. And uh, I saw that recently. I was like, oh, I put that on the list. The uh, you know, so I did like a pre order of it, and I was like, oh, when that comes out. But I look at that, and you and you go, okay, so that's actually what you're dealing with so when you say you know it's it's all of these it's the expectation of these different things it's the perception that the the people have it's uh you may be the one person they ever come in contact with that's a marine right like out like they may walk past a ton of them but don't know it right like that kind of thing that is the one thing, but then also you do look at it and you go, okay, so they're about to come out with a book about us at the very beginning. <laughs> like th- yeah. we, this is what we have to deal with. This is what happens whenever I join this profession. This is the thing that we come from, right? Um, I think that's a really important piece. I think that's – you know, it's funny. So I'll I will tell you why I – I will tell you the opposite of that. I will tell you a bad experience. Uh, because I think it's one that has stuck with me, but I think it's important. It goes into the profession. So I always—I I never had a problem with any of the branches. I've never cared, right? I've always been like, hey, everybody does their own thing. They choose their own branch. That's awesome. Everybody's got their role. And I'd seen some really good examples of what the United States Marine Corps can do and what the United States Army and what the United States Navy and, and what they can really do, right? Good, bad, ugly kind of thing. But I, But I was very impressed with everybody for the most part, everybody that I worked with. I felt like most people I came across, which is really good, and I think part of that is in the aviation side. Like a lot of the dudes were taken that are jumping out of airplanes or they're going to these places. You know, like on a one thirty, a lot of the places you're touching down, there's a lot of people. Those are people going into harm's way, right? So they tend to just have like a certain edge about them, and they tend to have like a you know, like a kind of a focused look on their you know, a steely look, if you will. So I think this is that's what, that is so important what you're talking about, how you led those women. And I think it's a very, very vital piece to understand the profession of arms. And then to also understand you really do, like you said, like you do get to control that narrative of like, that's what they know. And that's what they see. Cause if you had just been like panicking and just melted down, it would have been like really bad. So I, I use the example of being on a deployment and I'll have to be a little bit careful. With some of the details, um, not not like oh there we were like I can't tell you but not that kind of thing mm-hmm. but like just leave out some of the details but we go on a deployment and we were uh we were doing airdrop to uh we were doing an airdrop to uh to some agency right in some place and that's the only thing I've really got to say on that one but the army was helping us so they were loading right so the way that works on the aviation side they were obviously coming out and doing the JAI so basically they are the ones they bring out all the all of our uh all of our bundles all of our stuff and they put and we roll it on they're doing all the checks making sure everything's rigged right and everything else for an airdrop and we were doing an airdrop in a place that at that time we were not doing stuff mm. right but this guy the guy who main, the main guy who comes out is sloppy he looks like a shitbag in his uniform right he's he's unshaven. I don't mean like unshaven cause he's deployed. He's at a, he's at a, at a good base, like far. <laughs> <water> from, bread. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like he can go and get cold milk anytime he wants to. Right. Like he's, he's, he's in a good spot. Um, but he, he looks like a, he looks like a dirtbag. All the people that are with him look like dirtbags. He's in charge, but he looks like a piece of shit. And that's the honest way I can say that's the most honest way I can say it. And like, so we rig takes forever. Like takes hours to get all this shit done when it normally shouldn't. We go through all the stuff. I've got two unbelievably like I've got the, a very very high experience sharp crew. We go out and do our thing. Go to drop. A couple of the bundles go out. The rest of them do not. It wedges and it won't go out of the back of the one thirty. It's two in the morning. Like that's the only thing they're getting for a week. So whatever came off that bundle, that's what they're getting, and that's mm-hmm. all they're getting. So whatever we give them, that's what they're surviving off of. And these are just a couple individuals in and just in the middle of nowhere, right? And so we go back. We obviously have to come out of there. We're talking about like, hey, can we do another run? What do we got? And this work and that work? And we're like, we can't drop. This is Wedge. Something's going on. We can't see what it is. This doesn't make sense. We go back. We realize... They basically use the pallet. They went through a whole inspection. They air, they download, they stopped. Like when the airplane comes back, they impound the airplane. They come out, they inspect everything. They check it. Because if you're the crew and you did that and you fucked up, you're all done. Like enjoy, enjoy being humiliated in front of all of your peers because you're the pieces of shit who just got hooked and can't do your job now. And so you're in the Middle East, unable to do your job. And they go through the whole thing and they realize that the plywood they had used the bottoms were ripping out and they had not like verified that it was good. So when it got placed in, you couldn't see and it cracked. They didn't, mm-hmm. they didn't do their job. Right. So those individuals ended up getting in trouble. Right. But like, as soon as they said that it was like instant, I was like, yeah, that guy looked like a piece of shit. All of them yeah. looked like a piece of shit. They, they look like they didn't know what the fuck they were doing. Like I was so much, it's, it's like the most bitter thing I've ever felt in my entire career was that right. Cause that night we failed those individuals on the ground. I can't imagine being those human beings in the place they were with nobody to come get them. They were truly like, you know, we see the Mm t-shirts. It's like, nobody's coming, you know, that kind of thing. Well, there's nobody coming for them and that's all they got. And now they're out there for, and for whatever they got, that's what, that's what they were surviving off of. And that shit just made me so bitter. About that. Right. And I was like angry. And every time I saw somebody in the army for like a good couple months, I was like, fuck you, you're terrible. Like you're, you suck. And then we were around some, some guys that came out that were army and they were just crisp, sharp. Everything they did was like fluid and efficient. It was, everything was great. We rig everything, boom, we go out, we do it. And immediately it changes my own person, like my own personal take on the army again. Right. And I go, Oh, you know what? It's a couple bad eggs. It wasn't the whole army, a couple Mm -hmm. bad eggs. And it was like that kind of thing, that shift. Right. But like, it doesn't matter if we're talking about the civilians, it doesn't matter if we're talking about other, like each other in the uniform, we look amongst ourselves and we can see, and we would be like, you don't look like a professional. You're not carrying yourself like a professional. You're not prepared to do something in a moment. Like these are real things that we look at. And we like, these things matter, like they really truly matter, right? So it's like I, I had that real moment of just being like, man, this we were let down. And then, but then also like bitter ourselves, right? Like, how do we not look at them and not know and then still go out and do like we had all this we were bum, man? It was a bad, it was it sucked. And we were out the next night doing our job and getting after it again, right? So we were good. But it was like we were successful the next night, totally successful with all of our drops. And every drop after that, totally for months, right? But that stung. And I look at that now and I think about like the guys and the gals you have that come in to that class. And it's like, that's really, really serious. That was an individual who was an E6 in the army. And like, if you're going in and you're sitting in those classes and you're having to decide whether you're taking Gunny, you know, the Gunny seriously when he's talking to you or not. It's all of those little involvements because that is a person who like never thought though like what they did. Like I guarantee you that guy didn't think that what he did mattered. Mm-hmm. Guarantee you, he's like, uh, who gives a shit, man? I'm just on this deployment. I just want to go home. I don't care I'm at this base. Like I'm sure he was thinking like nothing that I do is nothing that I do matters. Nothing that I do affects anything. And then that happens. And you directly affect the war and you directly affect human beings on the ground doing their job. And it's the same thing as that it, the way that you've carried yourself in those six years, the way that you've uh, honestly, the way that you've made your, your own now wife, but your girlfriend at the time comfortable enough to then say to other people, Hey, he's a Marine. He's going to take care of this. Right. Like even that, like, you know, and I I think one of the craziest thing, and I I tell this this part
1: of the story to you all the time is like, at that point in time, me and my, my wife, we had been dating for like six months. She's You know, born and raised in L.A., went to UCLA, didn't even know the Marines were stationed, you know, 60 miles below yeah. L.A. She knew nothing about what I did or what it meant to be a Marine. She just had that yeah. civilian perception, too. Right now, she knows, you know, a lot more yeah. about our life after six years. Right. But uh, back then, she was just like one of those civilians, too. Like she didn't know. She just knew it meant something. Right. That's uh, right. But, but your story paints out, you know, the the opposite. Right. The inverse, which is it is so easy to chop down and whittle away at the reputation at the profession at whatever, because absolutely happened in one instance with you uh, and say that other army crew doesn't come out and you don't <clears throat> get that other, you know, converse experience, then oh, yeah. what is the perception that you're left with? You could be still talking about, you know, the army sucks six, seven, eight years later for the rest
0: of your absolutely. career. Right? Absolutely. Oh, that's real. Like that's, and mm-hmm. that's a real thing, right? Like that's the perception. And like, I don't know. That's that's there's a there's a level of professionalism that goes into it. You know, every branch has the good, the bad, and the ugly of themselves, but that they're more familiar with and more intimate with than anybody else, right? Like, but my picture of the United States Marine Corps, after 22 years of doing this, my picture of the United States Marine Corps is I know that when they show up, all I have to do, like, again, spent most of my career on an airplane, right, hauling people all over the world. I can tell you right now, the worst group of people that you could ever put on an airplane are Air Force people. I hate them with all of my soul. I hate them. When we show up somewhere and it's Air Force people, I'm like, fuck, these guys are idiots. They're going to ask for like the in-flight meal. They're going to be stupid. They're going to say dumb shit. And they always do. They always do. The Marine Corps shows up. All you have to do is walk back there. Who's in charge? And all you have to do is find that one person. Mm -hmm. They all point at the person. Everybody knows who it is. They already know. They're defined in their professionalism. They all point at them and then they go, that person, you walk to that person, you go, I'm going to need this many on this side, this many on this side. You're going to sit them like this. You're going to do this. You're going to do this. You got it. Yes, sir. Got it. Boom. Done. It doesn't matter if it's an O. It doesn't matter if it's a senior E. I know I'm going to get guaranteed. I'm going to get the result that I'm after with the United States Marine Corps because they are professional at all times. Right now, you may have dirtbags in that same crew. There may be like one turd that everybody knows is a turd, but I don't know who he is. Right. Like, I don't know that because my perception is that, hey, they're squared away because they are. I've never in 22 years and a lot of deployments and a lot of interactions with the Marine Corps. I've never one time had to then go back and be like, hey, man, do you not know how to count? I said I need this and this. Like, I don't have to. I never have to do that. Right. Like, it's always I'm like even little things like, hey, we're going to be tight in today. You're going to be zipper effect like knees in between crotches like you know what i'm saying like yeah we got you like boom and they're all just tucked in everything they don't like there's no questions right hey when we get there we do this this is how you're going to get off the airplane you got it like if i'm dropping you off in the middle of the night in like afghanistan or syria and it's pitch ass black and there's nothing out there and i don't have to worry because i know everybody's getting off the airplane and we're going to be off the ground we're a giant target if i'm going to be off the ground in three minutes because the United States Marine Corps is going to take every, like if I don't tell them not to, they'll take the rollers. Like if I say, get everything off this airplane, they'll take my damn seats with them. You know, (laughs) like they'll take everything. I told them to get everything off the airplane. He'll take it. So like, they're no joke. And it's like, all right, cool. Got it. So I know I'm dealing with a professional organization. Right. And so I think that's a real thing. I think it's important. Those understandings of like different branches, you know, like, I want people when they come to the air force, I, of course I want them to tease us about the chair force. Right. Of course I want them to tease us about how easy everything is for us. It is. But I also want them to look at us and be like, they got a lot of smart people. They're like supposed to be super, super technical and really, really smart on these things. Right. And yeah, that's, and they know their shit too. Yeah. And they know their shit too. And that's what I want. Right. So like, I want people to come to the aviation side and be like, no matter what we're getting there safe. Right. It's like, you don't know where the hell I'm taking you. Like, I guarantee you if there were times that some of the people knew where we were landing or like what was around us, they'd be like, uh, this is not cool, man. I don't like this. Be like, yeah, no. If you could actually see outside right now, you'd realize that like that's a giant wall right in front of us. And we're barely going to skirt over top of it and then drop in and then land. So like, you're only going to be like 20 feet from this thing. So like, if we screw this up, we're all dead. So it's like, but they don't know that. Right. So it's like the, but that professionalism of like, if we do our job, right, we'll get you there and you won't know like what was out there and then you'll go do what you do and we'll all be happy. Well, that is the epitome of profession, right? Like that is really, truly getting, getting the fucking job done, taking your shit seriously. And like, that's the greatest compliment I can give the United States Marine Corps is like in 22 years, I've never had a bad experience with knowing that like they have defined leadership in the United States Marine Corps. I'm not saying that there's not bad leaders, you know that could be a a, a turd you know at the lowest level or the highest level Mm -hmm. but the understanding of this is what we will do now we will get this mission done now no matter what it is it's always there and that is that is a true level of professionalism that we're trying to we should try to attain and maintain you know yeah and
1: that that's really what i love about my job right now in the marine corps is is being at the staff nco academy like there's a way to, to transpose that onto your junior Marines, you know, when you're leading them out in the fleet and whatnot. Uh, but it's, it's so intermixed with what's the mission, what's my responsibility, what's my task for today? Like all those other things are those competing requirements. It's like Mm -hmm. here at the staff and CEO Academy, my whole job is just to talk about, you know, the profession of arms, leading mentoring, guiding, providing conversation, you know, providing a dialogue or, or an environment that allows for a dialogue to, have Marines kind of play out these ideas and riff off of each other to figure out like, Oh, well, I didn't think about it that way because you have a different perspective than I do. And you come from a different, you know, background than I do. So that's what I absolutely love about being in the role of professional military education. Cause it is, it is our entire job is to discuss that and to get Marines discussing it right. More importantly. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, that's what I love about my current position is I deal in that manner. And these conversations that we're having right now, I deal in this every day. Right. And that's just yeah. like, it's absolutely the best thing ever for, for somebody that like, like me who loves teaching and being in that environment is I get to teach, which I love. I get to talk about the Marine Corps and, you know, be a Marine at the same time and intermingling those two things is just, it's, it's awesome.
0: Oh yeah. It's well, it's a, yeah, I've, I've always loved, I love being an instructor on an you know, an, an, uh, like an aviation instructor and like actually being on a crew and teaching people. I love to see that development and, and watch them and see what happens. Right. And like, you start here and you suck. Like you suck on day one. You're not going to be a good, like there's like, there's no aviator that shows up on one day one and they're good at it. Mm. You you all suck at it because you have no idea what you're doing. But if you pay attention and you learn and I can, and I can actually instruct you in a good way that, that you're able to receive it and actually then get a result. And we work towards this over months and months and months. By the end, everything's fluid. Everything's normal. Everything's good. right? And that means that I've done a good job instructing, but it also means that like, You truly have learned how to take instruction. You've learned how to do the job the right way. You've learned how to become a professional and that kind of thing, right? Like that's a special, like that's fun. Yeah. And I think it becomes all the more important.
1: Like when we have discussions like this and we where we really tease out, like, hey, what does a profession of arms mean? You know, and getting people to to kind of buy into this and understand like you got a bigger role is like this becomes all the more important when our advantages that we've had over our adversary, you know, historically, at least in the last 67 years, mm-hmm. when those technological advantages start to decrease and, you know, relative polarity starts to happen across the spectrum, uh, you know, our commandant has, he's put it out there a ton of times. I listen to him speak every time I get the chance and and I watch, you know, the videos if I can't be there in person, right? Uh, and one of the the key things that he has is, he is fleshed out over his tenure as a commandant is that with this decrease in advantage in all these other areas that we've historically had, we have to really double down on what our centers of gravity are, right? And our mm-hmm. center of gravity, essentially, in the Marine Corps, and, and I think in America in general, is the individual, right? And Absolutely. Certainly when we're talking about the the military, our center of gravity, our, our decisive advantage that we have over the, the adversary is our individual, the thinking man and woman on the ground that wears this uniform. Uh, And so that's where... I love the position that I'm in right here is because I'm working on that center of gravity every day when I influence Marines, when I talk to them, when I get them to understand that they need to be a thinking individual. uh, Because if you don't focus on that, then that, you know, the center of gravity quickly becomes a critical vulnerability if you don't invest in it, right? Absolutely. Uh, That's that's kind of been, you know, my mantra as I I work my way through being an instructor is this is important because of this. And that's why I'm focusing on it so much. And I'm I'm glad to see like the Marine Corps, you know, and, and I can only speak, you know, To an extent from my perspective in the marine corps like we've been focusing on that a ton is on the individual how do we make the the individual more lethal more agile you know more competent because at the end of the day when we're stuck on an island somewhere um and we have a a squad leader you know like a sergeant or a staff sergeant who is this senior individual Mm -hmm. and you know historically you 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 can just reach back to the c2 node but you're not going to be keying right. out on a 152, uh, you know, out no, you're gonna blow up your uh, electromagnetic spectrum and give yourself away. You don't have that ability, right? And so what I'm trying to do right now is, is shape minds that understand that you have to be the sergeant or the staff sergeant Absolutely. that understands the environment. Because you're going to make decisions on the tactical level that are going to have operational and strategic effects, right? 100%. That's, that is not a, hard, uh, that's not a hard hypothetical to play out. When you're talking about shutting down a strait so that an enemy ship can't sail through it and you have a naval strike missile at your disposal, what are you going to do? Like that is a strategic decision, right? Yeah. But you're at the tactical level and it's maybe not the st- the type of level of decision that we've ever had at our enlisted levels before at these mm-hmm. ju- more junior levels. This is a decision that, you know, a regimental commander had to make you know that's right not even not even five or ten years ago to make this kind of decisive strike against an enemy that's it's right like, this quickly becoming the reality of what we need to prepare for uh and so anytime i can stress that to to the marines and kind of intertwine that with the discussion that we're having to make it seem like this is serious because of this reason right that's right uh i think that that becomes even you know even more important nowadays in this discussion that we're having about what future warfare looks like and trying to spend a lot of time in that realm of future warfare and a lot of it comes down to talking with people like the cognitive marine who you've talked to a number of times now yeah uh individuals like that who are teasing out those ideas because that's what we got to get that's the reality of the situation right oh Uh, yeah
0: yeah 100 and i and i try to spend as much time trying to talk to people outside of my own branch to really understand those things and then of course bringing it back and talking to mine i know my guys you know i i keep speaking about some of these These direct individuals, these three individuals that I'm really working with day in and day out right now, obviously working with a lot of people, but like those three are trying to design the next warfighter. Um, What they're trying to do is define an exercise and build it based off of the future warfight. And these are two E6s and an E7, and they're going above and beyond. And they just briefed the 06 the other day, and he was like. It's fucking great, man. Like what you guys are coming up with is great. Right. But they're trying to talk about, like for us, it's ACE. Right. So they talk about this agile combat employment, which is like a big new thing. But one of the things I did was I slapped down 2030, like I slapped down force design 2030 and I was like, (laughs) read this and read ours and see this interchange. And I was like, so what we need to do is you need to start getting smart on these things that the Marine Corps really cares about because we need to then start communicating with them. The human element at our ranks There's nothing that says that we can't get smart together and figure out how we can communicate. We can't. And, you know, I talked to them. and they were like, Oh, well this and that. And I was like, listen, trust me. Like, so I'm an airborne radio operator by trade. Right. I'm like, Hey, um, trust me, you can, you can make these lines of communication. You will be doing this in the future on these other airplanes that you've not been doing this on as these new airplanes come on and they have these different things that they're going to be doing. Um, It's going to be variable platforms that they're not used to having with capabilities that they're not used to having that are going to require uh, skills that they're not used to having right? And so it's a very big jump, right? And like, you know, who's going to teach you this kind of stuff? These individuals over here, this, this, and this in the Air Force, and these kind of individuals on the ground, and the individuals who are at the best at it right now are the United States Marine Corps. So we need to get smart on those things. We need to try to start to figure those things out so we can start to communicate over these lines and start to define them, right? And so I talked to them about that, and then we're trying to work towards that. And that will be one of the next steps we get to. But then at the same time, I'm like, okay, cool. The other reason why we have to get smart on this, because, and, and this is a big thing for me, is this whole like, like you said, there'll be a there'll be a sergeant on a on an island in charge, right? But he'll already him or uh, him or her they'll have already had marching orders. They'll have already been told, hey, when you're out there, you'll have to come up with this, and these will be your these are gonna be your critical points. But like these are the things that you have to know, right? So it's this, this, and this, and then they're going to give, be given that command, and then they're going to have to go actually carry that out and be in charge, right? Like. We we may never be in command, but we can always be in charge, right? Like I, I'm a genuine believer in that. Like anytime I'm immediately separated from my officer, if I'm in charge, I need to be able to cognitively take care of my people and technically be able to take care of my people. And be able to communicate what they need to know so we can get, get in the fight, do our thing, and then we'll get back to the commander when we get back to the commander. And when we do, he or she will tell us what we're doing right or wrong, and they'll unfuck me if I need to be. But they'll make sure that we're good to go. But there's going to be a period, there could be a gap where we don't have that. The next war, it's going to be very interesting, right? We'll have individuals on the ground in the Air Force that are on the ground right next to Marines on an island because they're going to be the technical expert of aviation. When that airplane lands on the ground, they're going to know what, what needs to be done. They're going to have to sit on the ground. So they need to be smart about how to interact with the United States Marine Corps, right? Like they need to know how to deal with talking to ships. They have to learn these kind of things, right? This is different, right? So we have to get better at that. From the Air Force standpoint, I'm a big believer that we need to be communicating because, so it's funny, aircraft commander. So once, you know, you become a co-pilot. And then over time, then you become an aircraft commander, right? And you can become a mission lead, a mission commander, all this different stuff. So if you have like multiple airplanes, somebody on board is the mission commander. So they may be maybe five airplanes. Somebody's in charge of the entire thing. They're the flight lead, right? Mm -hmm. They're the actual overall the commander. But then there's an aircraft commander, right? But when these airplanes go out in the future, they're going to take off and they're not going to have any communication with anybody. And that aircraft commander is going to have to be in charge. And depending on what airplane you've been on, like if you've been on a... If you've been like a cv C V22 guy, or if you've been like a C130 guy, or like a like a Hilo, any form of a Hilo guy, you're used to going out and you are operating on your own. But if you're in almost every other Air Force platform, you have somebody else you're reporting to. This a battlefield commander, they talk about all the stuff I've never even heard of it sometimes. They're like, Oh, the package of this and the battlefield commander, and then I'm like the C2. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, when you leave, you're just on your own. And they're like, No, you have a person, like, you won't have that. So we have to then define that and teach the aircraft commanders that, right. And be like, so I've been having that conversation too. I'm like, Hey, you do realize that second word means something you're in command. They've, they you're congressionally mandated. And then somebody inside of your unit said, you are the commander of this airplane and these human beings go out and do the mission. And then you make the, the the command decisions when needed, right. To either carry the mission or to stop the mission. And if you stop the mission, which you shouldn't have, and the marines on the ground are dead. Like something's yeah. going to happen. So it's like all these very in, important things that that's kind of fleshing out. I mean, decentralized yeah. leadership at a one hundred percent, one hundred percent, is
1: a huge thing that we try to stress on in the Marine Corps. It's the, it's the reason that we trust in the Marine Corps a lance corporal to be a fire team leader. And it's like yes. that is not a small responsibility to say that you're now in charge of three other marines and their lives and the specific mission set that you have. That right? is accurate uh and that is obviously a decisive advantage we have over a lot of our adversaries too and we see this in the you know the russia ukraine war right now as uh, decentralized leadership means that yeah. generals aren't getting killed on the battlefield because they don't have to be out there kind of thing right exactly you right see that painted out but uh i mean that you were kind of fleshing out the difference between command uh commanders and, yeah. and leadership right command and leadership which is something that we were kind of talking about offline before we started this right yeah because uh, there is a difference right and you know, as a commander, you have a different level of responsibility. You know, you yep. can be a commander and be in a leadership position, right? And and mm-hmm. lead. Uh, but command is something different. And I think I've heard a couple of your previous podcasts where you're talking about that responsibility at the end of the day lies with that commander mm-hmm. of the aircraft. I thought that was probably one of the most succinct ways I've seen it put is like they at the end of the day, they're the one answering answering for absolutely whatever did or did not happen, right? Absolutely. Now, our, our role, usually on the enlisted side, certainly. Uh, is to execute leadership in your own capacity, whatever that capacity means, right? And that a lot of it comes down to job specifications. Mm -hmm. uh, But we have to understand that, you know, the dichotomy and the difference between there's the commander and then there's leadership. And those two things, although they do intertwine sometimes, they're not always the same. It's the same reason I don't have a commander's leadership philosophy. I have a leadership philosophy. That's right. Because I'm an enlisted
0: Marine, right? That's right. Well, and that's, you know, it's a – you know, I look at it and I go back to a, a bit of my career and I go back to the being a flight engineer, right? And I look at it and I go, okay. So on the airplane, when I'm flying on – like when when you're flying on a C-130 in a deployed environment, even at home, it doesn't matter. But like especially when you're deployed, it's a hard crew, right? So like there are six of you that are together and you're together for the entire deployment. Like you're together. So there are three O's and three E's. It's a very unique thing, right? Like it's, it's there are three O's, there are three E's. You become – a brotherhood, a sister, you become a family. Like it doesn't matter if it's guys or girls, you become this like intertwined. You, you do everything together. Like you're sitting in your hoots together, you're shit and you just shit talking each other together. You're going and like walking to the chow hall together, or you're trying to work out together, or you're going to the, you're going to mission plan together. Everything you're doing is together, everything. Mm -hmm. Right. And so you, you, you grow this cohesive family and everybody has a piece. Right. And so, As a flight engineer, my piece is to actually be the technical person on the airplane to truly understand what the airplane's doing, right? So if I lose this hydraulic system, what does that mean? What did we really lose? Can we still do the mission? Can I get the ramp open so we can drop the stuff? Or did I just lose the ability, like through that hydraulic system, did I just lose the ability to drop that ramp? Because if I did, I need to tell that's a whole different thing for the commander to decide, right? So I know that. I know if the flaps aren't working. I know if there's an electrical problem. I know if an engine goes out. I know if the generators start to go offline, do I just shut down a generator? Do I let something else pick it up and electrically run it? Like all these things are running through my head, right? At all times. And I'm supposed to be this person understanding this. I'm monitoring our fuel and I'm backing them up on instruments. And I'm actually the one that's coordinating it. I'm actually going like all the checklists for airdrop and airline and everything else. That's the flight engineer reading it. He's the choreographer. He or she is the, you know, you are essentially... Conducting the orchestra, right? Like you are the one that's trying to keep it. And if you do your job right, they don't realize you're even there because it's so mm-hmm. smooth and everything runs smoothly that they just like naturally do all the steps. That's when you're really doing your job well, right? When nobody even knows that you're doing it, everything around them is fluid and they don't even notice it, right? And so that's what's going on in the brain. But at no point, at no point, ever they've asked my opinion i've given it and they followed it they've trusted me but at no point ever did i say that system went out so we're now going to do this ever i've suggested it i've been like hey sir just so you know and ain't even sir right like on the airplane it's pilot inch nav load like we don't call each other by r- there's no rank there's nothing you're just you're just that right so it's it's it is on, and that's on purpose to get rid of ranks that you don't try. Somebody doesn't get a halo effect. They don't actually start to like, even though they're the commander, they need to just be called a pilot in that exact moment. So everybody's on even ground. So you're doing everything together as a crew. And then you go into those roles. Right. But I don't dictate that we don't land. Right. If I tell them, Hey, I got that engine. If we shut, like, if I shut that engine down, we're on three, we can't do this. Hey, if we keep that engine going, what happens? Uh, We're going to have some power issues. We're going to be able to get on the ground. Once we take off, I'm going to need to shut it down. Okay, so but we can get on the ground? Uh, Yeah, we can get on the ground. Like I'm having a conversation with it. Okay, then we're going to do that. right? But if you ask me, should we do that or not, based on my experience, based on the system, no, we shouldn't do that. But if the commander says we're going to do it, and I know I can maintain that, then my job is to maintain that piece of equipment. But it's not to command and decide what we do. Right. If if he or she says we're going to land the airplane and it shits an engine and we can't get out of there, that's their fault. They're the one that owns that.
1: Period. I think uh, a lot of the times that's that's where mentorship comes in. Right. Yeah. This is it's kind of a weird to bring up this this topic inside of this, the context of this scenario that you just push out there because you're talking about a an enlisted marine talking to an officer right yeah. but i think it's it's almost more vital when you talk about this this role of mentorship in this context cuz it's not always viewed like this on the enlisted side and i can only speak from my own anecdotal experience and what i've observed but in my observation in the the roles that i've been in i've seen where this has gone wrong where enlisted personnel certainly at the staff and co ranks uh you, maybe the more junior staff and co ranks where they you know, we have this, this belief that, Hey, I'm in charge of my section because I'm a staff sergeant. I got always user experience. And then I have a Lieutenant who wants to do something mm-hmm. some way and I'm telling them they shouldn't do it. And they're telling me, you know, they want to, and then, you know, things get conflated and, you know, the staff will, you know, in broad brush strokes, tend to write them off. Right. And mm-hmm. really that's a role. That's your role right there to, to mentor, right. That's Not exactly to mentor, right. mentor up the, in the chain of command. Because uh, if you fail to do that, and I've seen it, and I've probably been a perpetrator, you know, in times in my career too, where I didn't understand my role as a junior staff sergeant that I had a role to influence that lieutenant. That's right. Uh, and so there's times where I did that poorly, and there's times where I did that, you know, I think phenomenally. Uh, mm-hmm. But it wasn't until honestly just recently in the last couple of years, especially being at a, being at an academic institution where I get to reflect and be pretty introspective on some of my past roles, where I've thought about like, okay. That was absolutely a, a failed, you know, point where I could have mentored this person better. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think, you know, that's a a great conversation to have about, you know, the mentoring up the chain of command and that because at the end of the day, that's oh, where yeah. you can really exert your influence is, well, if I could talk to this person and and mentor them and talk to them about why we're doing certain things, then in the future, this person becomes better at making those
0: decisions, too. That's right. Well, you know, one of the things we do a lot of times, like, or or I look back, you know, I look at the aviation side or whatever, you know, we get a lot of aircraft, you know, aircraft commander upgrade. Usually you go on the road. So like in the aviation side, you go, you travel off station, you go on a TDY, you do something. And there's an instructor that's there that's evaluating you being an aircraft commander. And that's kind of like their checkout, right? Like once all their stuff is done and it. They don't, not, they don't have to go to war. They just, they can go anywhere and go, they can go drop, you know, guys down at Columbus, Georgia. They can go to, you know, they can go overseas and travel overseas and drop stuff off and come back because you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know when the airplane's going to break. You don't know when all this stuff's going to happen. So they're going to have to make decisions, right? And that's a real moment for them to have to make those decisions. And I think from a mentoring side, I always look at those flights, those trips, like, okay, this one's a little different. This one, I'm not going to like, they're not a co-pilot. I'm not busting their balls right now because I'm going to, I'm just going to, I'm never going to let up on a co-pilot because they're usually like a brand new lieutenant <laughs> or like they're on the way to captain and they're about to become aircraft commander. So I want them to actually know a lot of the information I know because if they turn around and go out with like a very junior flight engineer, I need them to know what they're looking at and what they're being told because I don't need their flight engineer to run them down the rabbit hole in a bad way. Right. Right. So especially in the aircraft commander ones, I'll talk to them and spend a lot of time talking to them, like a lot of time, like, hey, do you know why we're doing that? Yeah. The reason why they're doing that is because of this. And so what happens is if, you know, if we don't take that panel off and we don't actually check that valve to make sure that's seated right, then we're going to get an overheat. If you get that overheat, what you're going to do as an aircraft commander is you're going to actually start to have them do this and you're going to run this emergency procedure. But if you know that this line is right behind the APU and this gets hot right here, but then, you know, or on the other side, it's like, Oh, it's right next to where the heat indicators are for the the wheel wells. So you're going to get this light and you're going to think it's this problem, but it actually could be this over here. So this is why they're getting in and looking at it. Right. So what I'm doing is I'm trying to teach them understand systems and everything else, but I'm also trying to build them in confidence in that exact moment, right. To be able to make that decision. So whenever I then, uh, You know, because a flight engineer, when they go off station, they're signing off the write-up. They're like, hey, that thing was broke. Now it's fixed. I'm saying it's good. But the aircraft commander has to actually sign their name to it and say the airplane is good to go. They still have to say it because it's theirs. So if I'm building them up and I'm talking about I'm like, hey, you know, when your crew chiefs are looking, this is what they're looking for. Hey, when your load masters are doing this, this is what they're looking for. Hey, the reason why your navigator did that, I bet it's because of this. And I'm just talking to them like, really? like It's just like it's like we're best friends or I act like I'm big brother. Right. Mm-hmm. So even though I may not be higher ranking in that moment, I try to really be like a supportive big brother or something like that. I try to walk them through these things. And and I, all I try to do is get them that first time when they're truly going to make command decision, even though like they're still protected because there's somebody there when they're really making that choice of command decision, they're doing it with confidence. Right. Cause I want them to just feel confident. And that's my way of like mentoring them to where they then like to then try to teach them to trust their ease. Right. So like in my mind, I'm like, this is your moment to become a commander. And if I can be calm and tell you these things and really like lay all this out, make you understand what we're doing on the enlisted side and all these little nuanced things. If I can do that for you and you can gain that confidence in a very calm environment, then the next time we go out, You're going to be like, oh, that's right. I can trust this person to do this. This is their role on the airplane instead of, I don't know, but I can't trust them. I'm just going to make the decision without all the information. And, and it's that kind of thing. Right. I think that's probably a big difference in us and you in the sense of like, when you guys go out with a Lieutenant, a brand new Lieutenant right out of, you know, right out of TBS, yeah, TBS. Yeah. Right out of the, the Lieutenant schools uh, that you guys go to uh, or that your guys go to, um, you know, you may be that Lieutenant may be getting there with a super seasoned guy. Right. Whereas like in hours they're going to walk in and like, there's going to everybody around them for the most part is going to be super seasoned and even in their own seat. Right. So it's a little bit different, but they have to learn how to trust an E to, to be a technical person. Right. Like you, you go through like, I don't, there's a very, there's like super subtle differences, but at the same time it's really important, but it's like, at the end of the day, the mentorship that we have to give them really should, in my opinion, it should be bred around that the ability to build that confidence. Right? Like mm-hmm. you have to be able to you have to build the knowledge base, the confidence for them to really develop and continue on to to get better. Like we can really fuck up an officer and ruin wow. them.
1: It becomes quick. so vital in the beginning of their career too, right? Uh, Absolutely something I got from a uh, Dave Armstrong who runs the bill podcast, yeah, right? Yeah. And some leadership podcasts. Uh, I was listening to one of his, his podcasts, right. And this really sunk it home to me where I forget what general he was interviewing, right. But he's interviewing some like three-star general, maybe De- uh, general, general And he throws out there, you know, he, he always paints this question to every general officer that he talks to, right. Was, you know, tell me about that first platoon sergeant that you had, right. Mm-hmm. Because that relationship, can form their perception of the enlisted ranks for the rest of their career, right? Absolutely. If you have a dirtbag staff NCO as your first platoon sergeant, and you think, I can't trust this guy with anything, and he gets relieved, and then now moving forward, they think, okay, well, I can't trust this, mm-hmm. my enlisted counterpart, because my first experience was crap. And of course, that can always be turned around, but now we're fighting an uphill battle, right? That's when right. Instead, if you are a competent staff NCO and you know your role in mentorship with that lieutenant that's assigned to you, and you know how influential you can be on their career, you start them off on the right foot, and they're going to want to listen to, and they're going to want to ask their senior enlisted for their input. They're going to want to do that kind of thing. And uh, that general left left the that conversation is essentially saying that you don't know who that lieutenant's going to be one day. That could be the comment on the Marine Corps, right? You know, That's General exactly Berger right. was was Second Lieutenant Berger at some point. Absolutely, was Second Lieutenant Smith. Same thing with General Mattis, right? That's right. And so you're talking about influence. How about the fact that any one of those lieutenants, especially if you're in the ground side on the Marine Corps, if you have an O three O two, you know, infantry lieutenant, any one of those can be the next commandant of the Marine Corps forty years down the road. That's right. Organizational impact you can have it at that level just in mentorship, right? Absolutely. Obviously, that, obviously, we think about it down, you know, down the chain a lot more often than we think about up the chain, uh, thinking about mentoring down to, you know, if I'm mentoring a, a Lance Corporal right now, that's 20 years worth of organizational impact I can have. But we, we oftentimes, you know, forget about the fact that this lieutenant could be a general officer, Let I mean, let alone the command on the Marine Corps somebody like that, right?
0: That's right. That's, oh, that's 100% the truth. You know, there's a, there's an O. Um, I won't embarrass him right now so I won't say his name or anything, but there's an o right now who is, an uh he is an o five, so he's Lieutenant colonel. you guys are the same, so it's lieutenant colonel so mm-hmm. um so he's lieutenant colonel and he's just taking over in command, right? And we worked in a different office together for six months, very, very closely, right? And I was his only was only one O one E in this office, working directly for the wing commander, right? So for the for the 06, like the base commander, that kind of thing. And so we're working on something together. And then he's leaving that position to go take command. But we'd had a lot of time together, and he got to the point where he trusted me, and he was like asking me, like, "Hey, so what would you know? What would what would you want me to do when I become the you know a commander?" What would you hope I would do? Right. What would you want me? What he's asking for in that moment, he's asking for my my opinion. He's asking for my experience. He's asking me to mentor him on how to handle his enlisted core.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Right. And that's a heavy weight, right? So if I'm a piece of shit and I'm like, ah, you know what? Just uh, you you got it, you got it, whatever, you'll be all right, or oh, whatever. Just Prioritize the
1: libos. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, do this, do that, and you know, just make sure you always give him a day off. But no, like My first thing was, I was like, Hey, you know what? I have no idea how they've been handled before, but when you get in there, pull in the senior enlisted from each one of these different shops, pull them in and actually find out like what it is they're doing, what it is they do for you, what it is they want from you. Like find that out. Like at the very beginning, I was like, you're going to have all these meetings and you're going to have all this stuff. Don't hold a meeting. Just pull them in and just ask them like, what are these things that I can do for you? Like, what is this? Like, and then do it and then watch what happens. Right. And, and even like this past weekend, he asked me to come in to explain something that has like come out like a little bit of the higher air force level and come in and explain it and talk to his people. Right. So it was like, Hey, come in. And then I want you to have like a Q and a, and I actually want them to ask you questions about this. So you can explain it to him, not him. Cause he knows the information too. He was part of the same, like he got the same information. He could have turned around and told them, but instead he's like, no, no, no. I want an E to come in and talk to them. And I want my O's to sit there quietly and listen. And then we'll interject if we need to, but like, we just want to sit here quietly and let the E's talk. But we want you to understand that like, we will bring in ease from everywhere. We will trust our ease. We will develop, our, like we will be a team with our ease, right? Like doing that kind of stuff. And I look at that and I go, you know what? Like that's him trusting it, right? Like trusting the process and trusting his ease and doing that and, Obviously, in most organizations, there's a lot more ease than there are ROs, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like you kind of want to have a good relationship with each other, you know? But I look at that and I go, man, I don't know what he'll do. I have no idea if he'll just like, when his time is done, he'll retire as a light colonel or if he'll press and he'll try to go, right? But what I do know, and I'm not the only ease been around, obviously, he had a lot of good ease and I know he did. He had to have a lot of good ease because if he didn't, he wouldn't ask me. Yep. Yeah. It's not like I created him. He started as a co-pilot and has worked his way all the way through the ranks. And he's obviously had really good ease that he trusted all the way along the line. And so when they got to me, it was like it, what it really was, was he had an expectation of what enlisted uh, were supposed to be doing, especially senior enlisted. So I could have botched that, or I could have tried to continue on and just help him from one to the next. And then now he's going on. And now, like I know some of the easy he's got, he doesn't need to ask me anything. He's got three or four of them that are a thousand times better than me. And so he's set like, but that's like just the, it's career progression, but it's also like mentorship progression. It's through those ranks, those different things, that next person up, like everybody's got their own way of doing it, but, but like, you have to, you have to have that you have to, you you, if you're an e and you do not think that you are going to make an actual difference on the officers, you are fucking up, yeah, you are really drastically fucking up. you are going to have an impact and an effect one on way those, or the other one way or another you're doing it you don't have to like it, but you gotta deal with the fact that you will you will have an impact on them uh, i I think that uh i mean.
1: So you you've written down your kind of your notes of your 20 year career and I, I've read over them right uh, yeah and one of the things I highlighted in there is is a point that you made and I think this is a, a pretty widely understood thing is you're always being watched and you're setting an example one way or the other right? always and that comes back to mentorship uh as well as whether you want to be mentoring somebody or you want to be leaving an influence on somebody you're doing it by virtue right. of rank at some point in this in in your time in the military right if you hit the right rank. You are influencing somebody, uh, and that can be positive or negative, right? That's right. Um, We see it play out all the time. And one thing that I really wish, um, that enlisted, you know, I'm speaking from the point of Marines, but this probably goes across services, right? That enlisted would get, uh, the notion through is the understanding that you can have an organizational influence, uh, by virtue of mentorship, like we're talking about in these, these kinds of things, but also you can affect the organization. If you're willing to just put yourself out there too, Absolutely. you got to figure out how you're going to project your voice, right? Cause there's different means and methods in doing so. Uh, we see it all the time right now in the social media space, right? I mean, yeah, you and I were in the social media space pretty, uh, pretty consistently. You can see like people can paint their own lanes and get out there and get their voice out there. Right. That's right. Uh, we're part you know, you're under the lethal minds umbrella essentially. Right. Yeah writing is a way of getting your voice out there, right? And Absolutely. I've done some writing for the Lethal Minds Journal. I've done some writing for the Marine Corps Gazette and the Marine Corps Lebanek. Uh, and so I found my own way of getting my voice out there in that regards. And that, that's something that I always, always bring up to my students is you have to understand at some point you can complain and, and you know, talk shit about organizational policies or, or whatever it is that you want to complain about. You can talk shit about it all day inside of a circle of your peers, whatever, mm-hmm. uh, in your shop or you can do something about it. Right. Uh, That's right. But if if you don't do something about it, then it just remains you guys talking crap about it. And it never actually progresses to something else. Uh, And I know that's not necessarily where you're going with that conversation, but that's kind of what I brought out of it. It it just makes me reflect on the fact that you, and I think what I really made the connection was some of the words you use, because there's a, a, there's a saying essentially John Boyd. I'm sure you're familiar with John Boyd. Oh yes. Uh, but John Boyd used to say to be or to do, right? Absolutely. Uh, yeah. There, there's actually this story. I think I still have it up on my computer. Yeah, I do. Uh, I just sent this this article to a buddy of mine. He's a mass sergeant. He was teaching maneuver warfare to a group of gunner sergeants the other day, and I sat in on his class just because it's an interesting topic. And he talks about the fact that uh, when John Boyd, when he was a colonel, and John Boyd, if anybody knows about him, he made some ripples, right? He, he Oh, yeah. He, made some, he rocked the boat inside yeah, the, uh, the Air Force. Maybe he wasn't liked by too many people because of that, right? The uh, air but, for a
0: lot of the air force is, has hold him in disdain and I yeah, find exactly. him to be an amazing yeah. individual and I'm a giant fan, which would yeah. kind of tell you about, you know, me, but. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Right. So, so John Boyd, he wasn't afraid to
1: rock the boat. Right. Uh, testament of who he was right. And for better or for worse, you know, depending on who you ask. But yep. one of the things he would say uh to young lieutenants that he interacted with and basically when I was reading this article, it essentially made it seem that if he saw potential in a young lieutenant he would essentially, you know, paint them with this question that you can be or you can to do or you can do. And by that, he meant that you can be, you know, you can be this perfect commander, you can be this poster boy child, you can get the promotions, you can be accepted by the organization in all regards, right, and play it mm-hmm. safe, or you can do something. And that might mean that you have to risk yourself, put your neck out there, you might have to make some enemies, ruffle some feathers, whatever. it Absolutely. is. Right? And what I pulled up that I still had on my computer that I sent to somebody was. Uh, This is an account from one of those. There's basically about a half dozen lieutenants that he approached in his career to say, you have potential to do something if you want to. Right. So this is one of the lieutenants that he had talked to. And this is how he approached him. He said, uh, Tiger, one day you will come to a fork in the road, he said, and you're going to have to make a decision about which direction you want to go. He raised his hand and pointed. If you go that way, you can be somebody. You will have to make compromises. You'll have to turn your back on your friends but you will be a member of a club and you will be promoted. You will get good assignments. Then Boyd raised the other hand and he pointed in the other direction. He said, or you can go that way and do something. Something that for your country, for your air force and for yourself. If you decide you want to do something, you may not get promoted. You may not get the good assignments. You certainly will not be a favorite of your superiors sometimes, but you won't have to compromise yourself. You'll be true to your friends and yourself and your work might make a difference. And it says that he paused, he stared into the officer's eyes and heart and to be somebody or to do something in their, uh, in life, there is often a roll call. That's when you will have to make the decision to be, or to do in which way will you go? And that's how you ended that conversation with the, uh, the Lieutenant. And so when I think about that, you know, it kind of brings me back to, uh, you know, certainly different points in the last couple of years where it's like, well, am I going to do something about this thing that I see or perceive as a problem, or am I just going to sit here and, and talk crap about it with my buddies and just leave it at that. Right. And so yeah. that's where I'd like to express that certainly to the enlisted side. Cause I think that they're the ones that don't get that pep talk as much. Cause on the officer side, it's almost expected that you will do like mm-hmm. you will, you will do what's in the organization's best interest. Like you will do these things and they, they go to these high level schools that are mandated by title 10 and they get these educations that allows them to do these things And on the enlisted side. It's like, well, we're supposed to just take orders. Well, no, it's more complex than that. If you want to do something, you can find your voice. You can find your role. You can do something. and I think, Absolutely. You know, nowadays, we're seeing that a lot more, certainly with the advent of social media and what that's providing,
0: i.e. a platform for people. We're seeing a whole lot more. 100%. Listen, you can be like I, – I like to tease and call it this. Um, I, I can't trademark it. I, I wish I could. I'd trademark it if I could. The honest answer is I look at it and I just think like we're supposed to be blue-collar scholars, right? Like, that sounds silly, but like, that's what I call it. I call it being a blue collar scholar, right? Like I I can read and define and develop all these things and be smart. When I left, when I left to go to staff, a former enlisted turned officer gave me this book, 19 Stars. It's a study in military character and leadership, right? And it's a book on, um, it's a book on four different generals, um, very famous Uh, Generals, obviously, General MacArthur, General Marshall, General Eisenhower, uh, General Patton, right? Yeah. So you got three five stars and then one four star. Exactly. Right. So he's got the 19 stars. He's crushing it. And he, he, but he, but he put a note in the front, right? And he, and he, and it's a note and it's got some little like quotes from Eisenhower and it's got some little notes from this. And he gave it to me and it's got like something in here that he wrote to me. And I was like, oh, that's really nice. And I kept it. But he told me, he's like, you're getting ready to go work at staff you're going to be around all these officers that are making these staff level decisions and everything else. And he's like, you need to understand officers at that level so that you can be a staff NCO at that level. Right. And so I read that. And then I read partners in command, right. Which was the relationship between Eisenhower and Marshall. And then I learned about this other character, Fox Connor. I was like, who's this? And I started reading about that guy. And I started to learn about the chain that the, that the officers have. Right. And you can take from Eisenhower and you can go all the way back and I've done it. You can actually find all of the leadership chain that goes all the way back to like the Mexican American war. You can find where this person served under this person and was mentored by them and Mm -hmm. served and was mentored all the way up through the army officers all the way through. And I started thinking about that. And what really scared the shit out of me was I was like, Mm -hmm. they have had this many mentors and this long of a legacy inside of just that. I could go into it with an officer who's had, an entire legacy of that. And they're going to expect their NCOs to be that. And I don't know what the legacy is of the NCO. I have no idea of that thing, like what that is, but I sure as shit want to be smarter than I am now. And that's why I tease. And I've called it that for a long time. I'm like, man, I need to turn into like a blue collar scholar, like something I read a lot. I need to read more. I need to read very specific stuff. I need to really understand like what they're trying to get after. I need to understand the difference in strategy versus tactics. I really need to. And I started to dive into this stuff and like really start to like Like I altered how I read, right? So I altered my reading for about five years. 75% of everything I read that year was already planned out. I planned it out in like November and then I made sure I bought all those books and that was like, I try to read 50 books a year, right? And I knew that I was going to try to read this, or if I was going to, like, if I knew it was going to be on deployment, I may, you know, read less or do whatever. But like, I had like a, a, like a staple style thing of like, Hey, I want to do this. Right. Well, I knew that maybe like 35 of those books were going to be organized or 40 of those books or something like that was going to be like, I was going to pick those books and those books I was going to read that year. So then I then said, I'm going to structure them out. They need to be a certain amount about leadership, a certain amount about like servitude. They need to be a certain amount about coaching, totally different, like all these different things. I need to read about what commanders are doing. I need to read about war. I need to read about cognitive function, something, whatever I decided those things that year. But those are the things that I got serious about. Right. And I tried to get super smart on. And then by default, what that meant was like, I started to like, I tried to like mentor myself, but basically that was just from looking at a bunch of officers being like, well, shit, this is what they're going to need. So officers and books. Ended up mentoring me because I was reading to try to get smarter to like figure out how to like be there to serve them and get the mission done. Right. So it's like not everybody has to do it that way, but that is a big way of how I chose to do it. Right. That's how I chose to get smart on the stuff. And I also got super smart on like Air Force history. Right. Like spending a lot of time studying John Boyd spending a lot of time studying uh, was it John Warden and learning about Robin Olds and learning about Hap Arnold and like all these different people along our legacy and like our world and what, it, what and ours, a lot of it is bucking tradition, right? Like the Air Force is big on not actually being big on tradition. We broke away from the army we stopped with army tradition. We didn't want to be told what to do. So there's a lot of that in there. So for me, I look at the air force and I'm ranting here for a second, but I don't mind because (laughs) I think the air force has lost its way in a certain amount where they're like, Hey, we don't want risk averse leaders, right? We don't want people that we want people that are just like you said, to be or to do. And it's turned into the, to be a lot of it's turned into the, to be right for us. Right. I think it has. Right. So it's, It's that thing where it's like, no, 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 no. We're going to be, we're going to go get after it. We're going to go do the thing. Right. And it's general Mattis has that quote, right? Like it's actually the thing that's on my screensaver. And it says, if the risk takers are punished, then you will retain in your ranks only the risk averse. Mm. Right. That's it. That's general Mattis said that, but that sits right there on my, on my background, on my, uh, my screensaver of my computer right there. Right. And it's like, doesn't mean every day you have to take risk, but you better be fucking ready to take it. Like, yeah, and then you also better be smart enough to take it, like yeah. when to take I, it. Yeah, I
1: uh, that quote from General Mattis reminds me of a speech that I listened to of General Krulak, who was our commandant back in like 1996. Uh, he's talking about the fact that he always tried to structure his staff, even when he was a commandant, to have people that were willing to risk telling him the truth. And one of the people in the crowd is like, "Hey, sir, you know, how did you determine that people were willing to risk that?" Right? And he's like, "Well." I'd have my staff. And after three or six months or whatever it was, I would look around at who is basically challenged my decisions at one point or another. And he's like, if there was somebody that was too risk averse to do that and they never challenged any of my decisions, he's like, I would remove them from my staff and get somebody else in there. Absolutely. Uh, And it's like, yeah, there's, there's a point in time, especially, you know, when you get a little bit more senior in the ranks where it's like you have to be understanding of there's a point in time where I'm willing to risk something to try and better the organization whatever that that might be right you got to find yeah. out what you're passionate about to do, to do that right yeah um but until you're able to do that it's like you you can't also you can't complain and then not do anything about it at the same time which is what i really started right. out to people is like you can't just complain and not do anything about it i mean you can but it's it's not going to do anything right And you're not better yeah. than anything So it's just, it's empty words at the end of the day. So you got to find out like, is this something that I'm willing to defend in some manner? Okay. Well, if it is find find the way to do it. Right.
0: That's exactly
1: Uh, right. We we have enough people in, in any organization that aren't willing to do, uh, and I'd say, you know, argue in the military nowadays, we, we don't need any more of that. Right.
0: That's right. Yeah. Yeah. No, we don't need that. We don't need that at all. We need the individuals who are going to be like, like, there's nothing wrong. Like everybody should have that. You should have that moment of like, that's dumb. Why the hell would we do that? Right? But that should be followed up by, because based on experience and understanding and this and that, and all of us getting together and having, coming up with a solution, we know that it could be this. So why don't we take that up and see if we can make that happen? That's what you got to follow up with. You can be pissed off about something, but you mm-hmm. need to have a way to follow up. And it's not like, a, I'm going to follow up because I need to get my point across. It's, I'm going to follow up because I know that there's something out here and we need to like, keep going on this subject. And we need to talk more about it. We need to figure out where we can get to. Like, these well, are the kind of things. I'd say
1: a good example of that just right now, just cause it's very timely. Uh, you spoken with, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Justin Gray recently, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, talk with him, him a lot. He's a great dude. Obviously people should be following him on Instagram. Uh, Justin Gray, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Gray and Lieutenant Colonel Gordon, uh, Manuel mm-hmm. Gordon. He's on Instagram too. Uh, their niche right now kind of is in the role of mentorship, kind of the conversation we've been having, right. Mm -hmm. Uh, Where they've identified that and they did their own like little polls on Instagram and got a bunch of responses and stuff and basically just asking Marines, Hey, why do you, why do you choose to get out of the Marine Corps? And one of the number one responses, and I just had a conversation with uh, some high level leaders in the organization uh, very recently where they said they echoed essentially the same thing. It's like the number one response for why Marines get out is because of uh, lack of mentorship or Mm -hmm. basically not getting that mentorship or that leadership from their first line supervisor. Right. And so that's real. They, they identified that as, as the problem. Right. But instead of just complaining about it or, or, you know, just taking that information, whatever they're doing something about it. Right. And so they started up a a little network that's going to launch pretty soon. And the reason I'm speaking about this is just because I'm kind of helping them along with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, in a very small regards, right? I'm not going to paint myself up to be like, you know, the founder of this thing, right? But they basically reached out to a bunch of staff and NCOs who they've seen in their own regards making a ripple in some manner, right? So yeah. you could just think about some of the more prominent staff and NCOs that are out there on Instagram that have their own niche that is helping or developing Marines. And they reached out to a bunch of us. Uh, you know, I, I run the Quantico Warfighting Society page, which uh, I do my own thing as far as like trying to get education and out to the military off hours. Right. So I'm taking PME and kind of taking it out off hours. Right. And so me and, and major gray, we've had, we've known each other for a while and we've talked a bunch. And so he asked me to be one of those, you know, founding mentors to come over. Mm -hmm. And so basically it's just, Hey, they have identified a problem. Okay. Mentorship is lacking in a certain regards. Well, let's make a difference. They're starting this network. They're getting a whole bunch of people that are willing and volunteering to be mentors to, Mm -hmm whoever wants to come into it. So, I mean, it's still in the, they're still actually doing the software like development of it, mm-hmm. but essentially what it's going to look like is you're a Lance corporal, you're a corporal whatever. And you can have a, you know, an assigned mentor or whatever officially has to happen on, on paper at your unit. And that's good and dandy. But if let's just say it's not working out because you know, chances are it might not work out and you want mentorship, you want development. Well, come to this, or, uh, you know, this software, this, this app, whatever it's going to end up being. And you can apply and and become, you know, mentored by one of these individuals that's out there that is freely yeah. of our own time. Like we're volunteering because we want to help mentor the force, right? None of us are forced to absolutely. be absolutely. So, you know, that's just a good example uh, in this talk of like, that's somebody that found a problem and just said, I'm going to do something about it. And, you know, grassroots movement kind of thing. Right. And so that's a great example of that, that same kind of thing that we're talking about.
0: Listen, that's important. We talk about retention and everything else. Let me—I'll be a perfect example of that, right? I will—I will say this, and like, most people be like, "Ooh, I can't believe you say that." I don't care. Um, I'm on my way out, right? I'm retiring mm-hmm. in 22 years. I don't have to get out. I'm choosing to get out. I'm choosing to get out because I hit a wall with a level you said first-line leadership, first-line supervisor. I'm a senior NCO who hit a wall with a lack of good senior NCOs above me. Since, uh, you know, all this different stuff's moved on, but like 100% finally got to a window where I was like, I've gone from two unbelievably top tier organizations that were unreal and now hit a wall and went, oh, so some really good O's, really good O's outside of my organization that have Mm -hmm. kept me like, like kept me motivated to keep trying to serve them. Right. Mm -hmm. And some really good junior E's that made me stay longer and want to try to continue to serve them. But then I hit a wall and I go, no, I'm good. I got 22 years in. I don't have to do this anymore. I don't, I'm not chasing rank. I'm good. I got where I need to go. I did what I needed to do. I've served my time. I hit a wall. I don't have this level of mentorship that I should, I should have, which shows me that I do not have proper senior enlisted leadership inside of this organization. Now, I'm not even talking about like. One specific, I'm just saying like in general, in this, in this pocket, this window, right? Since that occurred and I punched my ticket and said, I'm done. There's been a lot of shifting and moving. And there's been a lot of people like, Hey, we want to, we want you to stay. We want to do this. I'm like, you know what? No, I'm good. I hit a wall, not your fault, but I hit a wall and I'm done. And I checked out, but I am, even though I'm over the 20 year mark, I am a retention loss Mm -hmm. based on that. So when you think that that, like when people listening don't think that that matters, that matters. So like having a mentorship, like a mentorship program, that is a real way that you can have it to where you can be, you can get somebody like, like me, the next me that's coming along. Let's say 21 years in, that's basically when I said, okay, I'm done. 21 years in and they want to make that push and they want to keep serving but they hit a wall. If they have something to go to and they're like, you know what? I just have to get through this little period of time. I got to get through a year. I got to get through the next six months. I got to get through the next two. I got to get something from somewhere. And if they can get that from an organize, organized place of mentorship, that's a win, right? Like that's a giant win. That is a retention tool. And you think about the guy that's 16 years in, who's just like, fuck me. How am I going to get the next four years? I hate this. The guy who's got two years in the guy that's got seven years in, it doesn't matter where you're at in all of this, that's real, right? Like that's a real thing. So the, what they're trying to do, I'm a believer in, I'm a big, big fan of it. I love that. They're doing, we talk, like, I've talked to, you know, I've talked to Lieutenant Colonel Gray quite a bit about it because I think it's really, really important what they're doing. Um, Because you can see it even in the Air Force. And that's not me like trying to poo-poo on people. Like again, that's nobody knows who this is and they've all moved on. But like that was a real thing where it's like, uh uh-uh, no, that's not good. So to have this is very, very important, right? To continue to be able to do that. Like, I love that they're doing that. That has to go and that goes across the spectrum. They go to the Marine Corps to start with, but Mm -hmm. damn, if that doesn't matter across the entirety of the of the United States military
1: absolutely because one of the hard things is and and to give credit where credit's due right the organizations themselves try to do their very best yes right uh we have the we i don't know i i should be more read in on it but i don't know exactly how the marine corps is laying it out but i remember when i checked into my first unit they're like hey uh you're assigned to lance corporal savel he is your mentor now and i was like uh okay go and I meet this guy, it just so happened for me and him that we did hit it off, right? He was a great yeah. guy. He was the guy that everybody wanted to look to and wanted to get mentored by. I just happened to you know yeah. be assigned to him. But in 80% of those situations where you're, you know, Lance Corporal A, you're assigned to Corporal B as your mentor, like that's not always going to work out because mentorship is kind of one of those things that kind of has to grow organically, right? Yes, absolutely. Uh, for it to be successful, right? In any regards, because otherwise it just ends up being well, I'm your mentor, here's your goals, and here's your counseling for this month. And it doesn't really develop into what it needs to be. That's so correct. The, the big problem is in an organization of, you know, take 180,000 people like the Marine Corps, is how do you get that to be an official thing where it works for everybody? That's because right. what ends up happening if you allow it to grow organically is, is the Pareto distribution, which is essentially the 80-20 split, which is, you know – 20% of your individuals are producing 80% of the results. So if you That's allow right. it to be organic to a, a complete extent, then it's going to be, who is that heavy hitter corporal or sergeant? Cause every Lance corporal is going to want to get mentored by that one or those two p- individuals. And then the other five, six, seven, eight individuals are going to have nobody that wants to be mentored by them because mm-hmm. they're not that heavy hitter. And so the, the organization tries to do, do its best to make sure that everybody has a role in both sides of that spectrum. Uh, but at the end of the day, there's nothing like organic, organic grown mentorship, where there is somebody that's volunteering saying I'm here. And then there's somebody that's saying, I want to be with yes. you. I want to get something from you. And that's really what these different movements, you know, on social media and these individuals that are putting themselves out there and saying, I'm here, I'm here to give this thing, mm-hmm. uh, whoever wants to come to it. It's, it's obviously voluntary. Cause this is your own time, your own space, you know, yeah so i think it's it's a great thing when we see a lot of those things popping up like that and that's why i'm you know i'm happy to help out uh what they're doing over there as far as uh what they got going now
0: well and you look back at that lance corporal you know and and uh you know we can kind of like end on this pretty soon but like if mm-hmm. you look at that lance corporal that was there for you that hit it off with you right like what you're doing now helping that is paying it forward right so like Again, I'm I don't know. I don't know what number base this is, seven or eight for me. I don't even know. Whatever number base this is that I'm on now. I'm public school, so I don't know if I can count that high, you know. But uh but whichever number I'm on, like my first base, I can tell you exactly in the junior in the junior enlisted ranks and the junior NCO ranks and in the senior NCO ranks who are my mentors. I can tell you at every single base, except for one. I can mm-hmm. tell you at every single base where they all were every one of them. And that means that even when I was, you know, even when I made E7, the E3s and E4s that really rubbed off on me, the E5s, E6s, the E8s, E9s, all of that, right? Like those different things all around me, I can still tell you about all that, right? So like, I like to mentor because I like to pay it forward because I had so many people help me that I want to give back, right? I think it also breeds that. Like it, it, You feel guilty if you're mentored and then you don't mentor somebody else. You should feel guilty. Mm -hmm. You're Like you're robbing, like you're, you're stealing from somebody. Like they're giving you your time and you're not giving it to the next person. You're robbing that person of that opportunity. Like, like find, like find a way to give back, give back in some way. And if the mentoring thing is something you feel comfortable with, then do it. Like then definitely go forth and do it. You know, like that's a really important
1: thing. You know, yeah, if if there's one ending note that I'd add on to any of that, is uh, and we've we've fleshed out this idea, I think, pretty extensively that mentoring all these things it goes up and down the chain of command, right? Yeah, Uh, if there's one thing that I'd emphasize just to to kind of round this all out is to not underestimate your ability to impact the person that's doing the mentor mentoring or somebody that's rubbed off on you for example like you said there's a couple of junior ranks that rubbed off on you that you got something Mm -hmm. from too right uh so one thing that i made a, a practice you know at my last unit when i was leaving first battalion fourth marines was to go around and thank all the individuals that had helped me and progressed me in some way or fashion so i picked you know arbitrary number but i picked 10 individuals right um and i fashioned this little gift Thing, right uh, we had deployed to Guam on one of our deployments and I had went to the beach where four landed on Guam to take it back from Japan during World War II and mm-hmm. I had gotten sand from that beach right so I, I put it into these little capsules these little glass capsules and and whatnot and I had engraved basically saying Guam white 2 in the date in 1944 and uh I went around to these 10 individuals on my last week at the unit and I went to each one of them separately you know and this went from one of my PFCs, you know an e2 all mm-hmm. the way up to my, my commander, my O5, Right. And I pulled each one of them aside and I said, Hey, I just wanted to give you this as a parting gift to let you know that you made some type of impact on me. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, because what I found was when I look at some of the most impactful moments in my entire career, I would say, you know, and I, I got all, you know, I got personal awards like everybody else does. Right. And when I look back at my career and I say, what is the most important moment or the most, you know, the thing that I value the most, it was some type of word of encouragement from an individual, right? That's right. I can think of the exact moment when I was a Lance Corporal and I had gotten the lowest pros and cons markings in my entire shop. So my proficiency and conduct markings were the lowest in my entire shop, like basically the worst Lance Corporal there. Uh it wasn't negative, but it wasn't it wasn't better than anybody right. else, right? And uh I had a a sergeant uh who is you know combat experience sergeant that everybody looked up to, just the senior guy, right? And he stopped by my room when I was cleaning one night and on field day. And he just, he came in there and I popped a parade rest and I'm like, you know, good afternoon, Sergeant, whatever. And he's like, Hey, you know, relax for a second. He's like, I just want to let you know that even though, you know, whatever your corporals have have given you for your pros and cons, so he obviously knew like what I got for pros and cons. He's like, I just want to let you know that uh, I see the work you're putting in. And if you keep it up, other people are going to see it. And I was like, Hi, sergeant, you know, and he he walks away and I reflect on that. And I was at a point in my career where I was like, I'm I'm obviously not good at this Marine Corps thing. Yeah. So, you know, maybe I am garbage kind of thing. And that one conversation just gave me enough. Like it gave me so much motivation that I just kept on pushing through it and persevering. And literally three months later, when the next reporting occasion comes out, I have gone from the bottom to the very, very top of mm-hmm. pros and cons markings. And I attributed all of that to that one person who he, I mean, he was not loving on the recruits. He was not somebody to give words of encouragement for no, yeah. no reason. Right. I attribute all of that success to that one individual taking the moment out of his, out of his day to say, Hey, I see it. I, I recognize what you're doing and just keep it up. And I, I had that individual pin me on for corporal for sergeant and then be at my staff sergeant promotions. And like, we're now gunnery sergeants together, mm. Uh, me and that individual. And I still talk to him. He's about to retire soon. I'd still tell him to this day, like your words, at that one moment passing by on field day, like that is what, you know, propelled a lot of my career. And I've had a couple other moments like that where it's like, I'm down in the dumps and one person saying one thing, it's like, that's what stuck with me all this time. Uh, so I just encourage people, you know, to recognize those individuals when you can, even if it's something as small as on your way out of the unit, stop by and tell that PFC, Hey, I know you don't think that you influenced me, but you did man. And, you know, keep that up kind of thing. Cause
0: Absolutely. That stuff goes.
1: It goes so freaking far. Whether you're telling your commander that, or whether you're telling an E two that, that goes so damn far in keeping people on that track and making them notice that their, you know, their input is not just in vain at the end
0: of the day. No, it's really not. There's a young guy. Um, I won't use his name, but there's a young guy. He's an E three, and he's in a sister squadron of ours. And I walk by him every day, and every single time he sees me, he's like. There he is. He's going to ask me a question. And every day I ask him some shit. I ask him some off the wall shit. Like, but I'm like, what'd you learn today? And he's like, Oh, I learned a lot of things. I'm like, really? Tell me all the things you learned. And he, he's like, I learned everything. I'm like, fuck you learned everything. Oh my God. You're the smartest person in the world. But I just messed with this kid. But like, also it got to the point where the other day he came up and he asked me a question and I was like, we're turning a corner. He's finally like, he's, he's settling into the unit. He's, he's doing it. He said, I can see he's relaxing now. He's starting to feel like part of the team. Right. And I'm just having fun with him and goofing off. But I'm like, you know, but every time he sees me, he's like, damn it. But I'll I'll say that kid right there, that kid right there is my motivation right now. When I walk down the hallways, I hope I see him Mm. every day that I go in for the last, like he's been here that I've noticed him for the last, like four months, that young man, every single day, I look forward to seeing him in the hallway. Cause I know he's going to have the shit there he is moment. And then he's going to be like, what's he got for me? And he's motivated. And then I'm going to ask him and he's going to be like, Damn. like the questions are getting good now. Right. Cause I'm like, yeah. "All right, he's motivated, but now he's just like, oh. but then he tries to figure it out and then he gets involved in the, and I'm like, there it is. That's the future. I'm going to be gone. And that E3 is going to continue to move up. And like, he is, he is one of the main inspirations for me to finish out my time as best I possibly can, because every day that I see him walk around the hallways, I'm like, that kid's so lucky to be this young and be ready to have this whole world in front of him. But he he rubs off on me every single day. And that's that's the kind of stuff you want, right? Like that young man, he rubs off on me and he's yeah. well
1: below me in rank. And it would almost be a disservice if at some point before you get out that you don't tell that individual that, right? Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Because- can you you could imagine what a master sergeant telling that young
0: airman like how that kind of propels that person right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he's he's that. He's he's one of the largest motivations I have every single day to walk into that building is to see that young man and see what he's trying to do, and it's awesome to just watch. So it's important. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, listen, man. What do you got? Anything you want to finish on? Like I, I can't even tell you how appreciative I am that you took this time. Like. Yeah, no,
1: this is a good conversation. I appreciate it. Uh, like I said, anything that I can do to to help in this space. And then certainly now, especially that you're under the Luther Minds umbrella, right? Yeah. They're awesome organization, bunch of phenomenal people and doing, you know, the mission that I certainly believe in as yeah. far as influencing inside of the space that influence is so prominent in right now, which is social media. Uh, I mean, the only thing I'll end it on is, is I guess one of my favorite quotes, right? And it comes from, essentially my favorite book, which is about Faced by Colonel David Hackworth, mm. which if you're in the military profession, uh, yeah, you should read it, right? Yeah. Um, and basically he, he says that if at the end of the day uh, your men say that he was a good man and not that he was a nice guy, that's about as good as it gets, right? That's right. And, and you can analyze that a million different ways, but really that comes down to understanding like we have roles, we need to fulfill them, Doesn't mean that you can't mentor, you can't lead, you can't do all these things along the way, but there's just understand that dichotomy of leadership and what we have to understand as enlisted officers, whatever. Uh, I just throw that out there for people to contemplate. And then I'll throw that out there as a book recommendation for anybody that wants to hop on a book that they haven't gotten into yet.
0: Absolutely. Well, there you go, brother. Listen, I'm going to hit, I'm going to hit stop on this recording. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you. And you're welcome on any time. we can go deep down any rabbit hole you want to, man. Yeah, absolutely. All right, brother. All right, there you go. Gunny Chase, McGrory, Hunter, Quantico, Warfighter Society. Please check him out. The best part is we didn't talk about the Warfighter Society. Oh my God! It doesn't matter. We're gonna do a follow up episode. We're gonna deep dive into that. But we had such an amazing conversation that it didn't matter that we were st- like we- that was that was the real intent. Like I think we really genuinely planned on talking about that, and then we just. We just enjoyed each other's company, and we had a really, really good conversation. I hope that it was an honest and open conversation. I was trying to be as open and honest as I could be. I know he was, and we were really trying to get to the bottom of some things. Please give us feedback so we can understand it. Give it to Lethal Minds Journal as well. I said at the beginning in the intro, and I know you want to get out of here because you've been listening for a long time, but I said this in the intro that I was going to mention something at the end, and I think this is really, really important. I just want to follow up on what he said about John Boyd, Colonel John Boyd, United States Air Force, where he said, be somebody or do something. I cannot tell you how important that is. I remember a pilot gave me uh, uh, the book by Robert Coram on John Boyd. He gave me his book, Robert Coram, last name C-O-R-A-M told me to read it, and I read it. And he wanted to break it down with me and talk about it, the good, the bad, the ugly. And I could see the flaws in the system of John Boyd. But damn it, if I couldn't believe in his reasoning. And I bet that he probably had some asshole-like tendencies, and I bet he had an ego, and I bet he was super smart, and I bet he really gave a shit, and I bet he also didn't listen when he should have to his to his superiors, and maybe even screwed some of his subordinates. And I also bet that a lot of people were willing to go deep, deep, deep down the rabbit hole with him, and some were willing to go and jump right off the edge of the cliffside with him. One thing I can guarantee you, he did it his own way. Some people liked him, and some people did not. But he did something, and he wasn't someone. Because if I told you that he was a colonel in the United States Air Force, the average person would say, the average military person would be like, what was wrong with him? Why didn't he make general? That's pretty funny. But I talked to a Marine, and he's not the first Marine. He's not the second Marine. He's not the third, fourth, fifth, or 70th probably that I've heard mention John Boyd. When they think Air Force, they think John Boyd. He gave them the OODA loop. He gave us the OODA loop, but they took it and they really took it and ran with it. And they've modified it to what it it means to them. If you're a Marine, congratulations. It's a big part of who you are now. But I think about that. He did something instead of being someone. Some of us won't end our career the way we want to, and some of us will. Some of us won't end up with the rank we wanted. Some of us will. Some won't get the command that we wanted. Some of us will. But if you did four years or 40, you did your part. But what I will say is that I genuinely believe that the most important thing you can do is come in and do like old Frank Sinatra himself said. He did it it his way. Say, I did it my way. Don't do it an insubordinate way. Don't do it with an ego. Push your ego to the side. But if you sit in organizations that feel like they're just letting the system work so that they can make their way up, rock the boat. It's going to hurt. It's going to suck. Fucking do it anyways. We're only going to be in the next fight and win it if we actually do the shit that matters. It won't be the cool fucking toys we get from some Raytheon or Lockheed or Boeing or Northrop Grumman. That's that's things that we are issued. But I genuinely believe if you gave us a musket from the 1700s, we'd figure out a way to fucking win when we get creative and we get crazed. We get chaotic. We get all the things needed to get after it and go do the job. The United States military is filled with the most powerful, most raw, most intelligent, most just creative individuals. We, we, the human beings that put on the uniform, we will be the reason why something works or something doesn't. Go do something. Don't try to be somebody. And that's all I got. Cheers.